objective to create as much human suffering as possible. Tom Fenton, CBS News, London. It has been more than 20 years since smallpox was declared eradicated worldwide, and even longer since Americans stopped being vaccinated. Now the threat of smallpox is back as a weapon of terror. But Jim Stewart tells us Americans have little protection against it. The only remaining stocks of smallpox are supposed to be locked away in research labs at the Centers for Disease Control in Atlanta and similar ones in Russia. But with evidence that Soviet scientists who successfully weaponized it during the Cold War may now be working elsewhere, smallpox gets top billing for a threat capable of killing thousands. You know, I lose my sleep on smallpox. I think that's the worst because it's infectious. Our society is very, very mobile. All you're going to need is a few handful of cases. The United States has 15 million doses of old vaccine on reserve in case of an emergency, and Congress wants to produce another 200 million new doses. But the anti-terrorism legislation that would pay for all that has yet to be sent to the president. I think maybe they're stalling for time until they have more vaccine and they figure out what to do. I think a voluntary smallpox vaccination program is inevitable. The smallpox virus spreads through the air from person to person, so the very first smallpox victim to walk into a hospital could potentially infect every person there. Unvaccinated, an estimated third of them would die. I want to see the vaccination made available. I want to see it made available soon, and I want my children to get it. After September the 11th, Marsha Jordan Burke asked her pediatrician to vaccinate her children against smallpox. Their sense of urgency is they don't want their children destroyed like the World Trade Center was destroyed. They don't want their children destroyed like the World Trade Center was destroyed. They don't want their children destroyed like the World Trade Center was destroyed. They don't want their children destroyed like the World Trade Center was destroyed. Hello. Welcome to Media Roots Radio. This is Robbie Martin. This is going to be another solo podcast with me, taking you further down the smallpox rabbit hole. Now, this started originally as what was just going to be a one- or two-part episode, but now this has grown into four parts. So this will not be the final episode of this series, but I think that this episode will actually be one of the more exciting, (laughs) maybe the wrong word to use, one of the more resonant episodes, uh, one of the more interesting episodes for our listeners of the series so far. And part of that reason is because this is when the narrative of sort of why the Bush administration was rolling this smallpox vaccination program and scaremongering campaign out more clear. Their narrative becomes much more clear. And I'll give you a little bit of a spoiler of what that narrative becomes, and that's the Iraq war. If it hasn't already become obvious in this smallpox podcast series so far, The fears surrounding the 2001 anthrax attacks and the 9-11 attacks were not enough for the Bush administration, at least in their eyes, to get us hyped up enough to get us to go into Iraq. They wanted to use as many things as they possibly could to sort of spike the ball. And aluminum tubes, yellow cake for making nuclear weapons was one of those things that they tried to throw in there as well. Chemical weapons, VX, sarin, gas, was another thing they tried to throw in there. But I think as you'll see, the smallpox thing that they also threw in there, 
played a huge role in priming the psychological pump, if you will, of the American public to accept going into Iraq and to make the threat of terrorism as a new daily occurrence or terrorism as a way of life just seem that much more serious and realistic. Otherwise, why would the Bush administration be rolling out a smallpox vaccination program if, that w- if this wasn't for real? It must be real if they're doing this. So it sort of plays on that, that system of, in some ways, sort of that kind of relates to the COVID political discussion now of it's playing on our willingness to believe that our public officials have our safety in mind and that they're out there to protect us. So in a way, this sort of makes sense in a backhanded way of how this could have primed the pump just a little bit more to slide us into the Iraq war or to get the American public behind it. Because if they're doing this for our safety, then why would they be rolling out this giant vaccination program if there was no threat really behind it? If there was no potential that Iraq could do this? Why would they be going through all this trouble? Well, that's a great question. They did it entirely based on lies. So why did they? Well, functionally, by rolling out a smallpox vaccination program, that allows you to sort of prime that psychological pump that creates sort of consent for war. It helps manufacture consent. It creates a realism to the new reality that you're trying to create of this war on terror. So that's a little bit of a spoiler of where this podcast is going to take us, but it's going to take us there through a very detailed timeline. And this is the most detailed timeline of the three episodes so far, because it has the most dense timeline, the frequency of smallpox-related propaganda inserts in the media escalates quite a bit. But let's just go back to where we left off on the last episode's timeline, which was the release of the BBC-produced bizarre propaganda, quote-unquote, mockumentary or fake documentary called Smallpox 2002, narrated by Brian Cox. This documentary aired actually on the same day as a very important Bush speech, a very bizarre Bush speech, where it seems like Bush, again, might be on some kind of pharmaceutical intoxicants some kind of barbiturates or something, maybe some uppers and some barbiturates at the same time. He's acting very bizarre, overly confident. He seems clownish. And this is the early push for what would later become Project BioShield. This was his bioterrorism initiative push. This is why he was there speaking before a group of doctors. And this bioterrorism initiative push would include a continuation of a contract that had already existed between a company named Dynport, a pharmaceutical company, who at this point was already the Pentagon's vaccine contractor. This started in the Clinton administration, where the Pentagon spent $322 million to make new vaccines for the military. This is according to the New York Times, including smallpox. And this program was already on the books. This New York Times article is actually from 1999, and it says that this new vaccine produced by Dynpor for the Pentagon against smallpox will be ready by 2005. So I mentioned a vaccine manufacturing company on the last podcast called Acambis, 
that's based in the UK. Well, DynCore is based in the United States, and Acambus was contracted to make vaccines for the CDC, smallpox vaccines for the CDC. DynCore had already had a contract with the Pentagon previous to 9-11 to make vaccines for them, smallpox vaccines for the military. So each company was apparently independently making different batches of vaccine for different branches of the U.S. government. Now, the one thing that's a little bit different is that DynCorp was actually contracted to make a new vaccine. But instead of having this new vaccine ready by the time they were actually going to roll out this program, they actually did not have it ready. So their contract actually was put into action to just produce the same old smallpox vaccine based on cowpox. The same one that was just as dangerous as before. And Acambus was doing the exact same thing, but contracted for the CDC. Dynpor also has connections to Bioport, which later becomes Emergent Biosolutions, which produced the highly controversial and arguably very dangerous anthrax vaccine. So let's listen to a little bit of this bioterrorism initiative push that Bush was pushing for on February 5th, 2002, the same date that this fake smallpox bioterror documentary airs on the BBC. Thank you. Well, thanks for that warm welcome. It's uh, great to be back in Pittsburgh. Never did I think I'd come back and say, um, America's under attack. Never did I dream I'd come back to this beautiful city and say, we got to be on alert. But here I am. And that's what I'm saying. I, I, I walk in the Oval Office every morning. By the way, walking in the Oval Office is a fabulous experience. <laughs> it's, it's unimaginable. I can't tell you what, a, what, 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 what an honor it is. It is uh, it's great. It is a beautiful office. I get there early in the morning. Spot the dog goes with me. I don't let Barney go. I got a brand new rug, so he doesn't get to go. But I sit at this magnificent desk. It's a desk that had used by President Roosevelt, President Kennedy, President Reagan. And I read threats to the United States of America. Every morning, I'm reminded that my most important job is to make our country secure is to protect the homeland of the United States of America. And that's what I want to talk to you all about today. How best to protect the homeland. Research and development arm of the United States. We've significantly boosted the NIH budget, not only uh, to uh, help fight the war against terror, but also to help fight the war against disease. And I'm proud of the efforts of our NIH folks. And thanks for coming, Tony. <laughs> homeland defense. Uh, is, uh, takes many forms. And part of Homeland Security is to be prepared to fight any kind of war against bioterror. And that's what I want to spend some time talking about today. Some of us remember that back in the 50s, we had what was called the dew line on the Arctic Circle to warn us if enemy bombers were coming over the North Pole to attack America. Well, here in Pittsburgh, I had the honor of seeing a demonstration of the modern dew line, a real-time outbreak and disease surveillance system developed right here 
which is one of the country's leading senators, centers on monitoring biological threats. What we saw was how to take real uh, data on a real-time basis to determine if there was a outbreak of any kind, including a terrorist attack. The best way to protect the homeland is to understand what's taking place on the homeland so we can respond. And so the modern-day do line, to me, was fascinating. And I appreciate those who have worked so hard to, um, to come up with an incredibly useful tool for America, a useful tool to protect, uh, to protect ourselves. I also appreciate the fact that the University of Pittsburgh and Carnegie Mellon Institute launched what's called a Biomedical Security Institute to help protect the nation in all ways from the insidious, uh, the insidious uh, biological attack. I have made the Homeland Security a top budget priority. And I ask Congress to respond in a positive way to this request. For example, we're asking for $1.6 billion, this is additional money, for state and local governments to help hospitals and others approve their ability to cope with any bioterror attack. I want to make sure that each region around the country has the proper equipment and the right amount of medicine for the victims of any attack, should it occur. We've got to upgrade our communications, not only between the federal government and the state government, but between state governments and local communities and between counties and local jurisdictions. We've got to be able to talk to each other better so that there's real-time communications so that we can share information in a crisis. Information sharing will help save lives. And so part of the money is to bring our systems up to, up to, up to speed to make them more modern and more responsive. The budget also asks $2.4 billion to develop new test protocols and new treatments for bioterror weapons. We were able to save lives during the anthrax outbreak, but some infections were identified too late and some people were too badly infected to stave. We must do everything in our power, everything to protect our fellow Americans. We need better testing, better vaccines, and better drugs if America is going to be as safe as it can possibly be. And there's some hopeful news. Scientists tell us that research we do to fight bioterrorism is likely to deliver great new advances in the treatment of many other diseases such as tuberculosis, pneumonia, malaria, and HIV-AIDS. The monies we, sp we spend to protect America today are likely to yield long-term benefits, are likely to provide some incredible cures to diseases that many years ago never thought would be cured. It's an investment that will pay off not only for better security, but for better health. And I ask Congress to support me on spending this money. We're also going to expand our nation's stockpile of antibiotics and vaccines. We're going to have more of these important uh, uh, antibiotics and vaccines readily available. By the end of the current fiscal year, we'll have enough antibiotics on hand to treat up to 20 million people for anthrax, plague, and other bioterrorist diseases. We're preparing for the worst. We'll provide funds to states to make sure they can distribute medicines swiftly. And we're also going to expand our bioterror intelligence service. 
During the Korean War, we created what was called an Epidemic Intelligence Service to help defend America if any of our Cold War enemies tried to use bioweapons against us. Now we need to adapt the EIS to a new era and to a new mission. We'll make the commitment to expand and modernize the service and to work with scientists in this country and friendly nations around the world. All in all, my budget will commit almost $6 billion to defend ourselves against bioterrorism. As Tom mentioned, an increase of over 300%. It's money that we got to spend. It's money that'll have good, good impact on the country. It's money that will enable me to say that we're doing everything we can to protect America at home. I view this as a struggle of tyranny versus freedom, of evil versus good. And there's no in-between as far as I'm concerned. Either you're with us or you're against us. Either you stand for a peaceful world for our children and our grandchildren. Either you're willing to defend freedom to its core, or you're gonna be against the mighty United States of America. Now, even though the White House officially has been fairly coy on this smallpox inoculation rollout program, behind the scenes, the National Institutes of Health was actually actively working on a smallpox vaccine dilution study where they were using old vaccine supplies of smallpox with over 600 human volunteers to be given randomly varying strengths of the vaccine, undiluted, a one-fifth dilution, and a one-tenth dilution. And apparently the New England Journal of Medicine who published the results of this study said that the diluted versions of the vaccine showed just as effective as the undiluted version. But in the end, they recommended that if you're going to do the dilution method, one-fifth dilution is better than one-tenth dilution. Now, even though the U.S. government already had several contracts in the works with Acambis and Dynpor to make smallpox vaccines, this was still considered a huge success because apparently they wanted even more smallpox vaccine in order to prepare or be prepared in case of an attack. Secretary of Health and Human Services Tommy Thompson said that we are extremely pleased with the results of this study. And another study that was apparently also going well at the same time was a study that was about trying to find antiviral smallpox treatments by infecting monkeys with smallpox at Fort Detrick. And U.S. Amrid was in charge of this program. And this was getting less attention at the time, but apparently this study was also going well and was showing promising results, or so they were saying, even though people were saying how ridiculously dangerous this idea was to infect live monkeys with smallpox. On March 2nd, 2002, the old story we've been hearing about on and off since the very beginning of this podcast series, this idea that a rogue scientist or somebody stole Russia's smallpox stockpiles, or that Russia or rogue scientists from inside Russia's biological weapons program during the Soviet Union went rogue and let terrorists take biological weapons or sold them to terrorists from within that program. This is now a heavily reoccurring narrative. 
who we've been hearing about on and off. And Ken Alabic apparently was the one who was responsible for originally seeding this narrative about hundreds of tons of missing smallpox virus used in chicken eggs or somehow incubated inside chicken eggs and then turned into dry product. And the Baltimore Sun runs an article that's basically just talking about, you know, this conversation about the threat of smallpox. You know, what's going on? Um, and the guy who actually wrote this article in the Baltimore Sun is a senior scientist at the Center for National Security and Arms Control of the Sandia National Laboratories. And of course, in this, he talks about how the Soviet Union was working illegally on huge quantities of smallpox biological weapon throughout the 1980s. And this is the way that this article is ridiculously worded. But at least three scientists who work in the illegal Soviet bioweapons research program have independently testified that smallpox was made in huge quantities throughout the 1980s. The whereabouts of that material is now unknown. And North Korea, which received Soviet biological weapons technology, continues to vaccinate its soldiers against smallpox. There is only one way to interpret this. Weaponized smallpox virus exists outside of the official collections at the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention in Atlanta and in Novosibirsk, Russia. And are we as prepared to deal with a smallpox outbreak as Dr. Summers suggests? Hardly. With the acquisition of weapons of mass destruction continuing in Iraq and elsewhere, and anthrax attacks no longer the stuff of fiction, it is tragic that the threat of smallpox poses to public health is ignored by the discipline's very practitioners. The rest of us need not pay the price for their folly. <laughs> wow, that is hilarious. And this was basically a reaction to a guy named Dr. Alfred Summer, who I read an article from in the last episode who wrote an editorial saying giving smallpox to monkeys might unleash deadly disease. Um, and he was basically saying that this is sort of biodefense, uh, you know, R&D just gone too far unnecessarily. This Sandia Labs, you know, scientist is uh, saying that this is folly, where th how this guy is coming off. That it's folly to think that it's dangerous to be giving live smallpox virus to monkeys. <laughs> I mean, you can't make this shit up. On March 14th, 2002, the Singapore Straits Times runs an article called Smallpox More Dreaded Than Anthrax. The disease is a bigger bioterror threat, says experts. The virus is kept alive in only two countries, Russia and the U.S., but it is feared that the 60,000 scientists out of work after the Soviet Union's breakup, the virus may have made its way to the Middle East and North Korea. So this theme just keeps coming up over and over and over again. And this is also being kept alive by the senators and congressmen who were testifying and talking to these medical panels that were also constantly appearing before Congress and Senate about this smallpox initiative, essentially. Most of the discussion that they would have was not about crop dusters and anthrax attacks. It was mostly going to the more catastrophic idea of smallpox. And smallpox, out of, in terms of a bioterror attack, that was the ultimate. That was the one they would go to. That was the more nightmarish scenario. 
<clears throat> that article I just read you from the Singapore Straits Times was from March 2002. And keep in mind that smallpox 2002, <laughs> that's the title of the, docu- the fake documentary, came out about a month earlier than this. Came out in February 2002. Now, on March 16, 2002, you have an article that comes out in the News Telegraph in the UK called Defenses Against Smallpox Terror Attack Shored Up. The government has ordered a major increase to Britain's secret stockpile of smallpox vaccine to build up its defense against biological attack by terrorists. Millions of extra doses are being sought from suppliers in other countries after a review found there was insufficient stock. Ministers, however, have chosen not to follow the U.S. decision to ensure there is a vaccine dose for every citizen in the event of an attack. We are working hard to ensure that we are covered in every eventuality, said an official. It is understood that the UK stock will increase at least threefold in the coming months. Ministers held talks with UK manufacturers earlier this year and have opened negotiations to buy unused World Health Organization stock. They also hope to piggyback on huge US orders for smallpox antidotes placed after September 11th. Challenged on the state of Britain's vaccine stockpile at last week's conference of G7 leading nations, John Hutton, a minister of state at the Department of Health, implicitly conceded that they were inadequate. We will not give any more information about our precautions because that sort of information would be meat and drink to terrorists. We will ensure that we have effective and adequate supplies of the smallpox vaccines. Now, it's, it's just strange because there's an interchange in that fake documentary, and I actually played you a clip from this scene in the last episode at the end of the last episode, uh, where a health minister in the UK is being challenged on the preparations of how much smallpox vaccine they have on hand. And he happens to lie, apparently, uh, during the press conference and claims that they had enough on hand. Um, it's just bizarre that a similar interchange happens in real life a month after this fake documentary comes out with an almost identical scenario where the press challenge a health minister, John Hutton, and instead of lying and saying that they have plenty of vaccine, he kind of concedes, you know, takes this tough stance against terrorists, but concedes and kind of makes it seem like he doesn't want to say anything about what they have on hand in terms of preparation because, frankly, they aren't prepared enough yet and that they aim to be really soon is sort of his implication. So different response than the fake documentary, but bizarrely odd similarity to like real life versus simulation. And in addition to that, his wording is just so over the top. It's like he's tying in, you know, smallpox attack, this possibility of a smallpox attack uh, with this idea that it's going to be delivered by or via the terrorists. Somehow this Smallpox scaremongering propaganda reaches even just local papers like the Rocky Mountain News in Colorado. A news staff writer named Bill Scanlon for this newspaper on March 18, 2002, does his own little Judith Miller impression, where he just goes through the history of smallpox in Colorado specifically, but then uses it to lead into sort of the same script that I've been telling you for the last two episodes. He says, the fear isn't that Russians would arm terrorists, 
but that Russia's underpaid scientists would succumb to lucrative offers from terrorist states and smuggle some smallpox to them. Experts agree that an individual or two couldn't carry off a mass smallpox infestation, but that a rogue state that supports terrorists might be able to manage it. Ken Alibic, a former Soviet scientist, said in his 1999 book, Biohazard, that he supervised the production of 20 tons of smallpox for BioReparat, the Soviet Union's biological weapons complex. He said the Soviet Union had plans to deliver the virus on SS-18 missiles if it was engaged in a total war with the United States. By 1992, the Russians were making thousands of tons of the virus each year. Hopefully that's all been destroyed, but they don't know where it all is, says Dr. Stephen Cantrill, an emergency medicine specialist at Denver Health Medical Center. I am very concerned about the risk of smallpox. Releasing smallpox as a weapon of mass destruction can boomerang on the terrorist, but some of today's terrorists, quote, don't care about who they harm, including themselves, Cantrell said. The CDC finally is taking steps to increase the number of smallpox vaccines, Cantrell noted, but where have they been since 1992? Talking about the supposed time period when the Soviet Union was making hundreds of tons of smallpox somehow? In Denver last May, several hospitals participated in a disaster drill in which it was assumed that 4,000 people had contracted smallpox. We found it was a scenario that would just severely stress the hospitals, Cantrill said. So I guess the only new thing here, other than the rest of the article encouraging a aggressive smallpox vaccine rollout campaign already with no imminent attack, but the only new thing from this article, other than continuing this narrative about Russia's quote-unquote missing smallpox is this idea that Denver was doing smallpox terror, smallpox bioterror attack drills in hospitals and running their own gamed-out scenarios. So this was being done at the federal level with different exercises, but also being done individually in different states. Now, this is interesting. This is where you get a little taste of some of the political back and forth of vaccine versus treatment politics, where the CDC uh, was contracting out a pharmaceutical company called Gilead Sciences out of California makes a drug called Vistide, generically known as Sidofavir. And this drug was originally made to prevent blindness in AIDS patients. And I guess during the Fort Detrick U.S. AMRID CDC commissioned out studies, uh, Gilead's drug, Sidofavir, for treating blindness in AIDS patients, was shown to lower the infection rates of monkeypox in these monkeys they were doing experiments on at U.S. AMRID. Now, I guess there was an internal debate between people at the CDC if Sidofavir should be used off-label like this. And it was basically decided that it should not be. Now, there was an article published in The Lancet on March 22, 2002, that says orally available Sidofavir derivative active against smallpox. And it shows evidence to say that it had some effect in helping reduce the infection of smallpox. The New York Times and the Wall Street Journal both actually promoted this Gilead product as well. And in this article from March 20th, 2002, Dr. Anthony Fauci is quoted in it as saying this about Sidofavir. 
Although it's too early to say that this is, quote, a breakthrough, there are some very encouraging components about this. We are pushing very vigorously to get this into human trials to see if it would work. And then the article continues to say, but sidofavir must be administered intravenously, making it impractical in a fast-moving outbreak. Dr. D.A. Henderson, who was directing the federal office charged with preparing the public health response to bioterrorism, was the one who opposed stockpiling sidofavir against the wishes of people at the CDC. Because he believed that in animal studies, it actually showed that the drug is effective only immediately after exposure to smallpox, but not once symptoms appear. In any event, Dr. Henderson said the conversation about stockpiling Sidofavir was premature. The next step is to test the derivative in monkeys and then in people. Wall Street Journal seems to push Sidofavir a little bit hard, and it's written by Marilyn Chase, who actually wrote one of the better anthrax books. Maybe Marilyn Chase is somewhat plugged into the bioweapons industry as well. She wrote an article on March 19, 2002, for the Wall Street Journal that says, Smallpox drug isn't being stockpiled by U.S. despite potential to fight smallpox. Some scientists question why the U.S. government is devoting massive resources to stockpiling 280 million smallpox vaccine doses but won't stockpile sidofavir. People should rush to get the drug on their own. Sidofavir supplies are likely to run out quickly. And this is just to add to the ridiculousness of it. I mean, smallpox vaccine individual doses, they were able to at least negotiate the price low enough down where it was like actually, you know, relatively low per dose, even though they still were ordering basically like a half a billion dollars worth of doses of smallpox from these uh, pharmaceutical companies like Acambus and Dynepour. Uh, that being said, um, this Sidofavir drug cost $705 wholesale for just one single treatment, one dose. And this is just, you know, more disturbing information that's at the very end of this Wall Street Journal article that just shows you how fucking ridiculous it is what they're doing over at Fort Detrick and U.S. Amrid at this time period. And they openly would talk about this. You know, this is being printed in a Wall Street Journal article. It says, recently, however, Peter... Darling, a scientist at U.S. Amrid, used massive doses of variola, the smallpox virus, to reproduce a super-lethal disease in monkeys. Indeed, it was more lethal than the human disease, killing 85% of monkeys compared with only the 30% mortality in humans. I mean, what the fuck? This is the kind of like brute force crazy shit that they're able to do. So just massive, massive, massive doses, just keep giving a monkey smallpox doses like over and over again, just boom, boom, give them some more smallpox, fucking fill that monkey up with more fucking smallpox. Now, give them some more. It's not working. We're not seeing it yet. Okay, fucking now pump them full of a hundred fucking doses of smallpox. I mean, where do they, where's the limit here? What's considered too absurd for something for them to try? And by doing this, I guess they eventually got this monkey to be infected with smallpox, and it created a new form that was super lethal. This is not even from them doing gain-of-function research, like you hear that term a lot now. This is just from them 
basically giving a monkey smallpox doses, so much smallpox, heaping piles of smallpox until he somehow contracted a super lethal disease that killed 85% of the monkeys that got it instead of only 30%, which is what regular smallpox does in humans. I mean, Jesus Christ. Another pharmaceutical company gets a shout out, this time a French company, and the Wall Street Journal and Washington Post for stumbling upon a major cache of smallpox vaccine. In fact, they discovered that they had over 85 million doses. The French company Aventus Corp confirmed that they had found 85 million doses of smallpox vaccine in a freezer at the company's Pennsylvania plant. This article was published March 29, 2002 in the Wall Street Journal. On top of that discovery, researchers announced Thursday that the 15.4 million doses of smallpox vaccine the U.S. has on hand can be diluted and yet remain effective, increasing them to 74 million doses. Richard Markham, chief executive of Aventus Pharma, said the company contacted officials at the CDC and the FDA in the 1990s about the stores of smallpox vaccine they discovered in a freezer at the company's Swiftwater, Pennsylvania plant. And apparently Aventus was discussing with these federal agencies in the 90s whether to destroy these smallpox vaccine doses they had or not. And the decision was just never reached. Apparently they never even got back in contact with the CDC or the FDA. They just sort of dropped off the map. And Aventus claims that after the anthrax attacks in October, they raised concerns again about the preparedness for bioterror. So Aventus reminded FDA about these doses. And so I guess they've known that they've had these the entire time, and they decided to only go public with them once, I guess, the FDA or something said that they were effective again. I don't really understand. But this French company is basically announcing that they had storages of 62-liter bottles of smallpox vaccine that were now transferred to smaller vials and stored in a secret location. The Aventus, vaccine, the Aventus vaccine that was found is still being tested for effectiveness, but Health and Human Services officials said initial results have been positive, and they are viewing it as, quote, an insurance policy if there were an attack by terrorists. And this article reminds the audience that reminds the audience that the current federal policy is, quote-unquote, ring vaccination that in the event of a smallpox outbreak, that those who are exposed to the deadly virus would be isolated and vaccinated, with vaccines being given to their closest contacts and later to that group's contacts. Some health experts question, though, whether, whether ring vaccination would be sufficient in a large-scale outbreak. Bill Bicknell of the Boston University School of Public Health argues that vaccination of the U.S. population would be an important deterrent to terrorists. He suggests that when the vaccine supply is sufficient, emergency personnel and health workers that would deal with an attack should be vaccinated and monitored for adverse reactions. Then the government should allow members of the public to volunteer to receive it, he said. Even if they aren't vaccinated, people with suppressed immune systems such as HIV or organ transplants could be in danger of contracting vaccinia infections merely from contact with vaccinated individuals. 
Anthony Fauci said policymakers need to keep an open mind about the country's smallpox vaccination strategy. People are asking why we aren't vaccinating first responders, vaccinating people on demand. I'm not contradicting the CDC policy of ring vaccination, but there needs to be an open, transparent discussion about it. So that's Anthony Fauci sort of pushing for the idea of we need to start talking about rolling out a vaccine program for smallpox because people are putting a bunch of heat on them, basically. He says people are asking why we aren't vaccinating first responders, vaccinating people on demand. What people? Who's not? Who's asking that? I mean, I, I really don't think very many people are asking that. I kind of feel like he's just getting pressure from up above. The Bush administration is putting their thumb down on him and basically making him know that this is the pivot they're making right now, that we are going to roll out this program. This is the direction we're going in. We didn't just get all these smallpox vaccines ready in case of an outbreak for ring vaccination. We got them ready because we're going to roll out this fucking program very soon. Here's an NBC news segment that I pulled from a TV archive house discussing several of the things that I just mentioned. The smallpox dilution study being a success, our smallpox vaccine stockpile, fear-mongering about smallpox, and Brian Williams just introing the segment saying there's growing anxiety about a new bioterrorist attack of some sort. And the sort is smallpox. So this is an NBC News segment from March 28, 2002. In depth tonight, the deadly smallpox virus thought to be obsolete, but now there is growing anxiety about a possible new bioterror attack of some sort, which is why it was such big news that a French company has just revealed an astonishing find. More than 70 million doses of smallpox vaccine long forgotten in its freezers. Also tonight, new research that the sh shows the small amount of vaccine available in the U.S. may be available to protect many more people than originally thought. NBC News Chief Science Correspondent Robert Bazell tonight on the growing debate over the best way to protect Americans from this awful disease. It has been a terrifying prospect. The threat of a smallpox attack with only 15 million doses of vaccine on hand. But the studies out today on hundreds of volunteers prove the existing vaccine can be diluted extensively and still provide adequate protection. The supply of vaccine can be stretched considerably at least one to five and perhaps one uh, ten times uh, to give us perhaps as many as 150 million doses and hundreds of millions of fresh doses will be ready by the end of the year so now the questions are who gets the vaccine and when if in fact there is a bioterrorism attack with smallpox the potential consequences could be devastating expert estimates range from 100,000 to a million deaths a big reason? An infectious disease for which most Americans have no immunity. Immunizations stopped in this country in 1972. For now, the government plans to respond to a smallpox attack with the same strategy used to eliminate the disease in the late 1970s. Quarantine those infected and vaccinate everyone they've been in contact with. But many worry whether mandatory quarantine could work in modern times in an urban environment before panic overwhelms the public health system. That is why many health experts inside and outside the government are starting to discuss mass vaccinations now. The problem? 
Smallpox vaccine has far more side effects than most of the shots we're used to these days. One in a million dies from it, and hundreds get seriously ill. Officials say people need to understand that. Do they really understand what the risk is? And if they do, are they willing to take that risk? And if that turns out to be the case, then you might want to rethink a particular public health policy. Difficult questions, but definite progress in the effort to protect Americans from the worst of the bioterrorist threats. Robert Bazell, NBC News, New York. And up next when we continue, when the boss thinks you might be too old for the job, tonight fighting for respect in a tight job market. Do you know the warning signs of osteoporosis? Unfortunately, there aren't any. It's a silent disease with no symptoms unless a bone breaks. So ask your doctor about a painless bone density test and if Fosamax is right for you. Fosamax is for postmenopausal women at risk for or with... A prescription medicine from Merck. And find out if Vioxx is right for you. Vioxx. U.S. officials make no secret of their concern that terrorists might obtain biological weapons and few pose as great a threat as smallpox. The government has enough vaccine to inoculate every American, but as medical correspondent Elizabeth Caledon reports, the question is when and how to use the vaccine. This new emergency command center is part of stepped-up government efforts to prepare for a bioterror attack along with beefed-up supplies of smallpox vaccine. Our stockpile will contain enough smallpox vaccine for every man, woman, and child in America. But with the abundant stocks of smallpox vaccine comes a new dilemma. How best to use it? And even though this is not from a mainstream media publication, it's still interesting just to see how this rhetoric soaked in. You know, whether this was being planted by people from the Bush administration in more local papers like the Baltimore Sun or not, it almost doesn't matter because the language and the sort of the framing being used is just so loaded and so in line with the, you know, the manufactured paradigm of the war on terror. The article's titled, To Vaccinate or Not, Debate on Smallpox Likely. Sudden Availability of Shots Increases Urgency of Discussion. Later this year, Americans may face an agonizing decision. Should they roll up their sleeves and get vaccinated against smallpox despite potentially severe side effects and the small risk of a devastating bioterrorist attack? Prominent health officials are calling for an urgent public debate on the wisdom of offering voluntary smallpox vaccination. Large-scale immunization would be possible soon because research published yesterday shows that the vaccine can be drastically diluted and still be effective. I think the debate needs to take place over the next few months, says Dr. Anthony Fauci. I hope there will never be a smallpox attack, but you certainly need the debate before there's an attack. The last cases of smallpox occurred in the 1970s, but the disease was wiped out by a global vaccination campaign. But the September 11th attacks, combined with the deadly anthrax mailings last fall, have reignited fears of the return of one of the great scourges of human history, an incurable, highly contagious disease that killed up to a third of people infected. Scientists are divided on how best to defend against a possible terrorist smallpox attack. Beyond the question of a vaccination campaign, resistance appears to be growing 
to the Bush administration's decision to preserve the nation's stock of smallpox virus. If terrorist, quote, bio-martyrs, this is a hilarious term that I have never seen before. This is the first time I've ever seen it uh, as I'm reading this to you now. Bio-martyr. If a terrorist bio-martyr infected with smallpox appeared in several cities simultaneously, some experts think the ring strategy might not work. Now, they quote this Dr. William J. Bicknell again from the Boston University School of Public Health saying, I think the CDC strategy is flawed. Offering vaccination now would decrease the weapons value of smallpox dramatically, Bicknell said, possibly deterring an attack entirely. And then they actually, you know, in a good way, they actually quote two skeptics of this program uh, in this article. And one of the stronger skeptics they quote of this idea of vaccinating the public against smallpox because of a feared bioterror attack is a guy named Dr. Joseph A. Adams. He's a Townsend internist, and according to this article, who might soon have to advise his patients about getting vaccinated. Mass vaccination strikes me as a typically expensive, high-tech solution to a very far-fetched problem. People are dying from pneumonia who could be saved if we increase the rate of vaccination against that. My feeling is there needs to be attention to diseases we're actually suffering. So this article sort of starts acting like there's a fierce debate among American health professionals about whether to give the smallpox vaccines out or not. I mean, that's just such a, obviously a bullshit premise in and of itself, because like, you know, how many scientists out there actually really, when it came to having like a discussion behind private closed doors, would really buy into this idea that a smallpox bioterror attack was looming? even after the anthrax attacks. You know, this definitely would have been a hysterical climate following the anthrax attacks. But I think it's also smart to assume that, you know, most people probably in science probably knew how far-fetched this was. So there wasn't this fierce debate raging. Um, In fact, it only seems like there was only a few, a handful of very fierce advocates for vaccinating preemptively in case of a smallpox bioterror attack. And they just keep going back to this guy named Bicknell. And this is where things again start to get into that territory of sort of the feedback loop between policymakers, think tankers, insiders, national security state, deep state people from the inside feeding things to, you know, fiction writers and whatever. Um, Because On April 11, 2002, the U.S. Air Force Counterproliferation Center on Maxwell Air Force Base, Alabama, releases a paper called Smallpox, a Primer. It's part of what they call the Counterproliferation Papers, Future Warfare Series Number 9. This was written by somebody named Lieutenant Colonel Brenda J. McKelleny, U.S. Air Force. It's about 21 pages long. And you could find this entire report on the smallpox cache section of the anthrax cache uh, available to Media Roots Radio Patreon subscribers. It's a public document. You can also find it online. But we have this and many other documents that we're referencing in this podcast all in one convenient place to look at. So this is basically just exactly what it sounds like. It's a primer on this idea of smallpox being used essentially in the war on terror. It starts by saying... 
Smallpox is a virus that plagued humanity for millennia. It was the first and only disease ever intentionally eradicated from the face of this planet. A scourge defeated in a remarkable, never-before-attempted campaign of generosity and cooperation by the nations of the world. Its eradication was a triumphant symbol of science and dog persistence, winning over nature. Moreover, its eradication was a gift of man to all mankind. Yet, is it possible that the same hand of man that once rid the scourge of smallpox from the world will be used to unleash this terror again on its unprotected citizens? This chapter, by providing a thorough review of the history, epidemiology, and current risks associated with this dreaded disease, addresses that question and its implications for the American public. Implications Over the past decade, there has been increasing concern that rogue states and terrorists could use smallpox as a weapon. Its potential availability and natural lethality, as well as our susceptibility and inadequate stockpiles of deteriorating vaccine make it potentially a very deadly weapon. The potential impact of the intentional release of smallpox is so great that in February 1999, U.S. AMRID personnel reported smallpox as one of the, quote, the two greatest biological agents with the greatest potential for mass casualties and civil disruption. Because it could cause the most potential harm if used, CDC moved smallpox to the top of its bioterrorism threat list. A great fear is that the virus may exist outside the high-security storage laboratories in Atlanta and Siberia. Then goes on to talk about Ken Alibic, a defector who was a former deputy director of the Soviet bioweapons program reports Russia's smallpox weaponization program was active up until 1992. Okay, this is actually very weird when you think about this, and I'm just going to make a comment very quickly. Now, this whole time I've been sort of saying this out loud without really clicking in my head that, well, the Soviet Union collapsed uh, by the time the Berlin Wall fell. You know, sometime, what was it, around like 89, 90? So there's two more years here to account for. We, we pretty much helped install Yeltsin. He was our guy. So if Yeltsin was keeping the Soviet bioweapons program active when he was still president up until 1992, and Yeltsin ordered it to end, would that kind of make the U.S. a little bit, you know, having like an inside peek into what's going on over there? It's kind of suspicious the more that I think about it, that we're sort of drumming up all this paranoia that Ken Alibic is talking about, but yet... What were we doing when we were helping Yeltsin, you know, take over the post-Soviet Russian political landscape and he was still in charge of this? This is pretty fucking crazy. A recent unclassified intelligence report, it says in here, concludes that Iraq, North Korea, and Russia possesses the deadly smallpox virus, possibly for military use. I mean, what on earth? Are they talking about what recent unclassified intelligence report? I don't even know what report they're referring to. Um, and I've done a ton of research for this podcast and this entire series. So if anybody knows what that paper might be, please let me know. This paper I'm referring to now was released in April 11th, 2002. So it's acting as if sometime around April 2002, an intelligence report came out talking about this talking about how Iraq had smallpox. I mean, that's, I feel like I would have heard of that by now. That's a pretty wild claim to come out in a 
unclassified intelligence report. Now, does that mean it was like a intelligence report from the 90s? What report are they talking about? Now, I guess the only silver lining to this paper is they come up with about 15 reasons or so of why, you know, a smallpox attack would be difficult to to do. And they classify this as there are a number of factors given to explain the infrequent use of biological agents by terrorists. They include dependence on meteorological conditions makes agent delivery unpredictable. Conventional weapons are easier to obtain and employ and may be considered adequate. There is little precedence for the use of biological agents as terrorist weapons. Now, the conclusions of the paper are steps in the right direction would include improving medical surveillance, development of modern smallpox vaccine, production of much larger quantities of vaccine, development of new antiviral drugs, improved diagnostics, a stronger tech-based program for research and medical defense. To do less than this would leave us dangerously vulnerable to future use of smallpox as an adversary weapon of terror or war. Will smallpox be used as a weapon of terror or war? Information derived from unclassified intelligence sources report that smallpox may indeed be in the hands of a few rogue states. Once released, smallpox is not only dangerous, it is currently practically unstoppable. We must act now and quickly. Our defenses must be strengthened against the possible future hostile use of smallpox by a terrorist group or an adversary government. Now, when I said earlier that this is like a kind of a feedback loop type situation between an army strategist who's writing these policy prescription papers and people sort of in the journalist landscape space and the think tank space, um, it's because it is. Who does he use as notes and references for this smallpox, a primer paper released by the U.S. Air Force Counterproliferation Center? He heavily references people like Ken Alibic, Tara O'Toole, Judith Miller, and Brad Roberts of the CSIS. Now, if you want to just find this file name quickly in the, the Anthrax cache folder, the file name is 09smallpox.pdf. Simultaneously with the United States having this debate that seems being spurred on by White House officials and sort of, you know, catastrophic neocon psychopaths and people probably just from the biodefense industry and from the pharmaceutical industry who are getting their, you know, claws in there. The UK was simultaneously trying to figure out their own smallpox bioterrorism response program. The UK government was the Blair government. In public, the UK government shoots down the idea of mandatory mass smallpox vaccination preemptively. I mean, well, as they should have. That's a ridiculous premise that it would have been mandatory, even voluntary preemptive smallpox vaccination in case of a terror attack would be ridiculous. But quietly, the Blair government makes it mandatory for UK soldiers and certain UK frontline healthcare workers and government employees to get the smallpox vaccine. The Daily Telegraph on April 15, 2002, published a headline, Ministers rule out max vaccination 
Ministers rule out mass vaccination for smallpox. It says the government would create a series of, quote, firewalls treating those with the disease and inoculating people in direct or indirect contact with them to prevent smallpox spreading. That's another way of just saying ring vaccination, which was the CDC's current stated active policy that was on the books in the United States at the time. At the same time, there is to be an international exercise next month to coordinate cross-border cooperation among members of the G7 group of industrial nations. But the decision to buy 16 million doses of the vaccine was overshadowed by the controversy over the award of the 32 million pound contract to Powderject after it emerged that Dr. Paul Drayson, its chief executive officer, donated 50,000 pounds to the Labour Party nine months ago. It left the government embroiled in yet more damaging cash for contracts allegations. But it is understood that ministers chose Powderject on military and security advice. Powderject is ready to make available the Lister strain of the vaccine, the same as that's being developed for military use of the Ministry of Defense Laboratory in Porton Down, Wilts. But Powderject's main rival, which has won the contract to provide 92 million doses of the New York City strain of the vaccine, said it could have met British demand if the government had not insisted on their Lister strain. I mean, this is just where it gets sort of bizarre. There's two different, I guess, strains of the smallpox vaccinia vaccine, and they weren't making the same one that the UK government wanted. They wanted the Lister strain for some specific reason. Now, this just goes to show that people who are professors of microbiology, emerges professors of microbiology, at universities are not the smartest people in the room. Um, a professor of microbiology at Reading University, Colin Kaplan, said that he believed that the greatest threat was from bioterrorism. Having vaccine stocks is a sensible thing to do. Smallpox is destructive. All you have to do is smuggle someone onto the tube with the virus. He then shakes a handkerchief. So just sort of an interesting parallel how one of the other nations that was really gunning for Iraq, simultaneously the United States, the UK specifically, was also simultaneously sort of indoctrinating their public and their own government officials with this notion that they are going to have a rollout soon for smallpox vaccines because of a potentially impending bioterrorist smallpox attack. So this is, again, another very sketchy article written by Judith Miller and William Broad, the two very sketchy New York Times reporters who seem to be speak continuously getting insider leaks from people in the biodefense industry and biodefense intelligence sector of the U.S. government. Um, they wrote an article in the New York Times, April 25, 2002, that says, others, others follow U.S. on smallpox vaccine. Israel, Britain, and other countries are moving to acquire stocks of smallpox vaccine as the U.S. and Russia weigh proposals to begin vaccinating parts of their population against the disease. The moves are prompted by fears that rogue states or terrorist groups could acquire the smallpox virus and use it as a weapon. Okay, so just commenting really quickly here. What's new about this story? Well, Israel is moving to acquire stocks of smallpox, another country that was interested in gunning for Iraq and had a vested interest in that invasion. But what's new, also new here is that Russia was also weighing 
the possibility of vaccinating part of their population against smallpox for the same reasons, allegedly. Now, that's that's new. That's something that I haven't read to you yet in this podcast series. But here's where it gets really mindfuck-ish. Sort of really does your head in. And remember, this is a Judith Miller article. Recently, the Russian press reported that Moscow had decided to revaccinate its entire population. But in interviews this week, Russian officials and health experts denied those accounts. After the smallpox virus was declared eradicated from human populations, the Russian spokesperson said that if the health organization decided to preserve the virus, then the question stands of whether the population will be vaccinated or not who will be vaccinated, and what vaccine will be used. But Russian interest in revaccination in general worries some American officials, given the former Soviet Union's development of smallpox weapons and concerns that some of Russia's own stocks may have slipped into unfriendly hands. Scientists in the former Soviet Union are known to have made large quantities of smallpox powder, and its fate and that of the scientists who made it is unclear. In 1994, the Defense Intelligence Agency cited an unidentified source as saying that Russia in the early 1990s had shared smallpox technology with Iraq and North Korea. Okay, so that's actually probably obviously what that declassified intelligence report is. So it's from an anonymous, unidentified source. Great, I'm sure that's totally fucking valid and not an outlandish made-up claim. You know, it's just funny that, you know, if Russia accused us, say if like the Russian government was like, hey, wait a second, why is America wanting to inoculate themselves from smallpox? Like, are they going to do some kind of smallpox attack or do they know that smallpox is in the hands of some rogue entity that's going to harm the world? Like, what do they know? That's kind of what Judith Miller is saying about how some officials here are worried about Russia talking about vaccinating their population that that must mean that they know that their smallpox got into the wrong hands, like as if they actually were making these tons of smallpox, thousands of tons now. The count's gone from hundreds to thousands since last time I've referenced things about this. Just that's, I mean, because that's what's written in these documents. But I think what's interesting here is that Israel was, you know, one of the only other countries that was stockpiling doses of the vaccine. Why Israel? Well, part of the reason was there was this sort of notion being espoused, even though I haven't read you a direct quote yet, but it was sort of already in the air around this time, that if the United States attacked Iraq, let's say if we attacked Iraq, that Iraq or Saddam Hussein would just unleash some kind of like bioterrorist attack in response. And that if that were to happen, where would he attack? Well, he'd probably attack the United States and Israel in retaliation was sort of the premise that people understood. So it was already sort of folding in this narrative preemptively before we even get into the Iraq war, like setting the stage for this propaganda. Just a couple of days later in Newsweek, April 28, 2002, the vaccination question, policy to be drafted on smallpox inoculation. Public health experts next month will begin drafting a policy designed to protect every person in the United States against smallpox, 
The issue is unprecedented. It's the first time the country will attempt to develop a vaccine policy against a disease that has been eradicated. Driving the efforts are the anthrax attacks of the fall, which generated an awareness that bioterrorism could be a potent agent in the country's health. By the year's end, the federal government will have stockpiled enough smallpox vaccine to immunize every man, woman, and child in the United States. Under debate will be just who should receive it. Now, this article has a little timeline saying disease is deadly past, um, saying that Ramses V of Egypt died in the first suspected case of smallpox known to mankind in 1157 B.C., and it goes all the way to fall 2001, and the last event they have on the timeline just clearly says the anthrax attacks, whose victims included Kathy Nguyen, increase fears of a biological attack and spur new efforts to develop a smallpox vaccination policy. So this, is, this article is directly laying out and making it very clear that at this time period, it was sort of understood that the reason why everybody was having this smallpox discussion was because of the anthrax attacks that followed the 9-11 attacks. The article acknowledges this fact, and this is something that is still a little opaque to us. We do not know exactly who in the Bush administration had these discussions, when they were having them, uh, who was involved in them, but this is what we know. I mean, in the article essentially confirms this, you know, and but doesn't really offer any new details. It says, the notion that smallpox could be used as a terrorist weapon became topic of high-level discussions during the height of the anthrax scare. Separate discussions are underway at the CDC on a health policy for anthrax. The public will be brought into the talks in June. By late June or July, the CDC's full advisory committee on immunization practices is expected to finalize a strategy, CDC spokesman Curtis Allen said. Now, this article does mention the bizarre and very botched campaign that was attempted by President Gerald Ford in 1976. It said the swine flu debacle, that hopefully these CDC talks that are going to be upcoming will avoid the swine flu debacle and avoid the pitfalls that followed that debacle. Um, Apparently, Gerald Ford ordered the vaccination of the entire United States population from swine flu, but the sweep of the killer swine flu in 1976 never occurred. Now, if you're not already aware, Donald Rumsfeld and Dick Cheney were both in Gerald Ford's administration and were both actually partly behind this campaign, specifically Donald Rumsfeld. So there is precedent for just a totally unnecessary, completely rushed and completely backfired, you know, vaccine rollout. And this is also funny too. The Cato Institute chimes in in this article. They're not going to be part of the CDC advisory committee, but they quote a Cato Institute guy named Charles Pena, a senior defense policy analyst for the Cato Institute, who says, we live in a free country, and if the government has a vaccine, it should not sit on it. I'm not calling for mass vaccination, just vaccinations for those who want it. Pena and a fellow Cato analyst have completed a study on bioterror and smallpox, concluding that immunizing people who want the vaccine would help 
prevent mass panic in the event of an attack. I mean, really, the Cato Institute was stupid enough to commission a study on that, not the unlikelihood of a fucking smallpox attack and like how much just it would base on like a neocon balsa wood framework. I mean, that's pretty stupid of the Cato Institute. So just, you know, just nudging some of the libertarians listening to this program out there. Um, that's the Cato Institute playing into the fear mongering in general about bioterrorism instead of pushing back against it in 2002. On April 29, 2002, BBC News runs a story that seems to be sort of trying to spur people in England to understand the urgency of potential smallpox terror by letting them know how real and serious it is in the United States. U.S. prepares for smallpox attack as the headline. Now, this is one of the more hyperbolic headlines that you'll see, actually. U.S. prepares for smallpox attack. Now, that is what the U.S. is technically doing, but straight out saying that we are preparing for a smallpox attack, it has a much stronger sense of urgency to it when you say it that way, especially in the climate after 9-11. The U.S. government is making plans to stockpile enough doses of smallpox vaccine to protect every American citizen against the disease. Concerns about bioterrorism in the wake of the terrorist attacks in New York and Washington on September 11th have prompted the American government to plan for a potential attack. A $428 million contract has already been allocated to British company Acambus to produce 155 million doses of the smallpox vaccine. Tommy Thompson, Health and Human Service Secretary, said, while the probability of an intentional release of the smallpox virus is low, the risk does exist and we must be prepared. Smallpox was officially eradicated. The discovery of anthrax-laced letters sent to politicians and media personalities has increased fears of a smallpox attack. Officials fear there may be clandestine supplies of smallpox in existence. So it seems to me that the purpose of this article is to normalize the idea of smallpox inoculation rollouts in the UK. Well, if the US is doing it, then they must have a valid, then we must, you know, have a valid reason to start doing it. Now, by the time we get into May of 2002, we start to get actually some significant pushback bolstered by actual studies that were conducted, uh, research studies that were pu published in like research papers and journals, showing that the mass vaccination of smallpox currently in current society would result in mass instant deaths. From the BBC, May 8, 2002, smallpox vaccine could kill hundreds. The U.S. may vaccinate millions of people. Giving millions of people a vaccine against smallpox bioterrorism would end up killing hundreds and making thousands seriously ill, says a report. The U.S. government is planning the mass vaccination campaign to head off the threat of a biological strike. Some estimates suggest that as many as a million people could die following a major smallpox outbreak in an urban area. However, no vaccine comes without a small risk of side effects. Scientists from the University of Michigan have calculated that targeting young people, those under the age of 30, would mean the vaccination of approximately 82.5 
million Americans. And they're saying people under the age of 30 because the last mass vaccination program was done in like 1972. Of these, say the researchers, approximately 190 people might be expected to die from vaccine complications. An even more comprehensive campaign covering almost 180 million people would cause 285 deaths, the study says. In addition, serious but survivable side effects would occur in 1,600 people in the smaller campaign and 4,600 people in the larger one. Dr. Alex Kemper, who led the research project, said, The risk posed by smallpox vaccination is greater than the risk from other recommended vaccines. The public should be aware of these risks. Any decision to resume routine smallpox vaccination before a bioterror attack must carefully weigh these risks against the benefit of protection. The researchers found that the economic and human advantages of mass vaccination would be vast in the event of any smallpox bioterror attack. However, they suggested up to a quarter of those eligible for the jabs might have to be excluded from the program because they might be susceptible to extreme reactions to the vaccine. People with eczema or those who are immunosuppressed. And this is weird. This says that many polls in the U.S. say that there would be a high demand for smallpox vaccination should it become available, perhaps fueled by the anthrax scares in the wake of September 11th. I mean, what polls are they referring to? Many polls? Like I said, I've been doing a lot of research on this podcast series, and I have not seen these specific polls. I maybe have seen one poll uh, that talked about it, but no, I have not seen these polls they're talking about. The Washington Post makes light of the aspect of the study that talks about how there would basically be a beneficial trade-off. Even though they quote the study head saying, there's no other vaccine that we currently give that carries with it the risk of death. From a societal standpoint, we have to decide whether or not we're willing to take this risk. Now, Matthew M. Davis, one of the other heads of this same study, had a different sort of spin on it. And his aspect of the study was to determine if ring vaccination will be more effective against preventing like mass death than preventative smallpox vaccination of the entire population. And he determined that the harm caused by mass vaccination would be far less than the harm caused by not being able to stop the spread through ring vaccination only. Washington Post actually seems to take the spin that this study is actually saying that it's worth the cost. The sub-headline is, Mass Inoculation Might Kill Hundreds, Save Thousands. An article from U.S. state-funded media outlet Voice of America News by a writer named Dale Gavlik on May 15, 2002, publishes an article that says the WHO, the World Health Organization, to vote on keeping smallpox stocks. The WHO General Assembly will be voting this week on whether to keep remaining stocks of the live smallpox virus for further research. Concerns about bioterrorism involving smallpox make the decision critical. The World Health Organization is recommending that stocks of the live virus should not be destroyed, but used to develop new drugs and vaccines to combat any occurrence of the disease. U.S. Health Secretary Tommy Thompson, who is attending the meeting in Geneva, said he endorses the WHO smallpox recommendation. The resolution as it stands right now is what we want 
without any changes. We do not want any time limits on the termination of the stockpiles. We do not want any time limits on the termination of the stockpiles because we do not know what is going to happen. We want the stockpiles that we have to be able to continue to do research on and develop new vaccines, Mr. Thompson said. Now, the WHO was also playing into bioterrorism hysteria at the time. The head of the WHO's Research on Communicable Diseases, David Hyman, said countries must be encouraged to strengthen their disease detection and response systems to deal with deliberate outbreaks resulting from bioterrorism. We are recommending to countries to begin to look at other issues of preparedness, such as the need to be prepared should there be a massive surge of patients due to a massive use of a biological agent. He said strong national public health systems will be able to handle both naturally occurring infections as well as those deliberately caused. Surprisingly, this is actually might be one of the first things that I've heard from them directly, you know, while even looking into the whole totality of anthrax, bioterror, hysteria after 9-11, and the whole thing. But yeah, again, not that this needs to be emphasized anymore, but the reason that WHO was voting on whether to keep these stockpiles alive or to destroy them is because the potential of it escaping into the world from the from a lab itself and causing a smallpox pandemic is such a dangerous possibility in and of itself that it's almost like, well, we should probably destroy these so that there's not even that possibility that the disease is already eradicated. So this is where it gets sort of weird and silly. It's like we're talking all about how terrorists might have this stuff. But meanwhile, the United States, you know, doesn't want to quit their relationship with pathogens uh, like smallpox. Tommy Thompson doesn't want any time limits on this love affair with smallpox. The once very, very popular award-winning medical drama show, ER, has its season eight finale on May 16th, 2002. Season 8, episode 22, titled Lockdown, all about a smallpox outbreak or a suspected smallpox outbreak in the hospital where the hospital staff decides to impose their own lockdown and basically quarantine everybody. Now, the timing of this is just cannot be ignored of how much it's just playing into the zeitgeist the cultural zeitgeist and the fear-mongering at the time about smallpox in the media landscape. Um, you know, but there's some strange aspects to it that I, I think need to be commented on, like how they sort of present some like rednecks, uh, like tough guys in there who like don't want their civil liberties violated, who are like demanding to, that they get let out of the hospital. They don't want to be locked down any longer, even though there might be like a potential that they're infected with smallpox. And, uh, you know, right now in current popular culture, it's like people sort of of that political mindset are usually anti-vaccine. Well, in this ER episode, it's funny because they are demanding the smallpox vaccine. They're like, give us the fucking shot. We want the shot. And then they start like basically rioting in the hospital. So I'll play you a clip from that episode right now. Uh. This morning, a five-year-old girl came in here with a rash that looked like smallpox. She died quickly, 
Her older brother is still critical. We don't know what it is, and we don't know how they got it, but it's here, and it needs to be contained. This is not about denying your civil rights. This is about protecting you. If we let you go, you can carry the disease home to your own families. So please, stay here. Help us. And we'll all get through this. Excuse me? They told us if we get the shot, we won't get sick. We're ready. Yeah, unfortunately, that's not my call. Fine. Right here. Let's go. We haven't started yet. Look, you'll all get the vaccine. When? After we get confirmation. Oh, come on. We're hot as hell. We're starving to death, and you haven't done a damn thing. We are running the tests right now. Yeah, how about you let us leave, and you call us when you know something? So you just move back and get us some room. Frustrated. I know you're upset. Forget it. I'm not waiting anymore. There's a reason we have to do things this way. Stop stalling. Right. Hey, you had your chance. Forget the test. All right, all right, please, just relax, okay? It's gonna be all right. Just relax. Please. I'm going to go out on a limb and wager that this is some sort of, honestly, some kind of like government-sponsored tie-in episode of ER. It's just too odd. The timing is just too odd. On May 29th, 2002, an article runs in Reuters with the headline, Adult Smallpox Immunity Doubtful from Early Jab. Adults given smallpox vaccinations as children before the disease was eradicated in the mid-70s have probably lost their immunity to the highly infectious disease. New research in the U.S. is the latest evidence that people vaccinated decades ago may no longer be protected. Michael Soari, director of the Occupational Medicine Clinic in Maryland, told New Scientist magazine, it's showing us that after 20 years, immunity is not going to be there. The study of 621 microbiologists who were vaccinated again between 1994 and 2001, because of the type of work they do, found that only about 40 or 6% were still immune to the disease from their earlier vaccinations. And again, this article quotes from Bill Bicknell of Boston University, who advocates for mass vaccination. He's telling Reuters that he thinks that vaccination of first responders emergency workers, hospital workers, doctors, nurses, and other staff, and wider groups of people, essential for the maintenance of civil society. Talking about doing it preemptively. But this is not really boding well. Um, this is sort of maybe starting to make people think, if people are reading this, that their you know, immunity that they got when they got the smallpox jab when they were children is no longer effective. That's going to make those people think, well, now I need to get re-inoculated against smallpox. June 6, 2002, the Wall Street Journal reports on a poll conducted. Most Americans would receive smallpox vaccine despite risks. Almost three in five Americans are willing to be vaccinated for smallpox as a precaution against a biological attack. The responses from a study by the Harvard School of Public Health were made even though there hasn't been a case of smallpox in the U.S. in decades. And even though the individuals surveyed were told smallpox vaccination could produce serious side effects. 
According to the study, 59% of those surveyed say they would get vaccinated as a precaution against a bioterrorist attack using smallpox if a vaccine were made available to them. About 2,000 people were surveyed for this poll. June 7, 2002, Lawrence K. Altman for the New York Times writes a misleading headline saying, Preventative smallpox vaccinations urged for healthcare workers. Smallpox vaccines should be made available to certain groups of healthcare workers, like those in emergency rooms, even before a bioterrorist attack, a number of speakers said yesterday at a forum on vaccination policy. The forum was the first in a national series that the CDC is holding to solicit opinions before two advisory committees decide whether to change recommendations on smallpox vaccination. I mean, if you actually look into all these panels that took place, that the CDC solicited, um, a lot of people actually advised against even doing this. So the fact that the headline even says this uh, seems to just sort of be cherry-picking it. It doesn't even specifically say which panel uh, proposed this in the article, uh, which is kind of just odd that it would say that preventative smallpox vaccinations are urged for healthcare workers, even though that was not, from what I can understand, the majority of the opinions is expressed at this panel. On June 12, 2002, President George W. Bush, at a formal signing ceremony in the White House Rose Garden, signs the Public Health, Security, and Bioterrorism Act into law. And he spoke about the threat of bioterrorism. And this might be the first time Bush said on video that this was partly in preparation for the potential of a smallpox bioterrorism attack. And this bill will further develop a stockpiles of smallpox, vac- smallpox vaccines. Finally, the bill will help us develop better medicines for the future. It reauthorizes and improves the prescription drug user free act. This will make new life-saving drugs and therapies available more quickly and will help ensure the safety and effectiveness of the treatments. We'll also be able to use the combined research expertise of the government and the private sector to improve our vaccines, our medicines, and our diagnostic tests. Strengthening our protections against bioterrorists are part of a larger effort to deal with the new threats of the 21st century. Two days after Bush signs the Public Health Security and Bioterrorism Act into law, CBS News with Dan Rather runs a smallpox terrorism fear-mongering segment and proposes the idea of mass vaccination being mandatory versus voluntary and also does make it very clear that the smallpox vaccine is, as they say in their own words, highly toxic. Here's the clip that I pulled of this CBS News special. U.S. officials make no secret of their concern that terrorists might obtain biological weapons and few pose as great a threat as smallpox. The government has enough vaccine to inoculate every American, but as medical correspondent Elizabeth Caledon reports, the question is when and how to use the vaccine. This new emergency command center is part of stepped-up government efforts to prepare for a bioterror attack along with beefed-up supplies of smallpox vaccine. Our stockpile will contain enough smallpox vaccine for every man, woman, and child in America. 
But with the abundant stocks of smallpox vaccine comes a new dilemma. How best to use it? And we're going to just lay that against your skin. The government, which owns all the available smallpox vaccine, is sticking by its plan to wait to deploy the vaccine until it's necessary. In a strategy known as ring containment, the Centers for Disease Control plans to vaccinate in a circle around an infected person, vaccinating everyone they come into contact with, the people those people come into contact with, and so on. It has worked in containing outbreaks, so the track record of this is good. I think it is a flawed strategy that is not in the public interest. Dr. Bicknell and others are advocating a voluntary vaccination program, letting people choose for themselves before a biological attack. That decreases the weapons value and it protects the population far better and makes any attack far easier to manage and handle. But large-scale vaccination could mean large-scale problems. The smallpox vaccine is highly toxic and could be especially dangerous to people with HIV and immune system disorders. One to two per million people will have a serious enough reaction that they could die from it. But critics of the government plan say it's an easy risks versus benefits scenario. Take the risks now or wait to take the same risks under pressure. Elizabeth Kaladin, CBS News, New York. Check. In the middle of June 2002, the U.S. public was blasted with around a dozen coordinated news stories that spoke of a recently undiscovered outbreak of Russian smallpox from 1971 as suddenly being investigated. Now, I'll just give you some excerpts from some of these articles. Um, an article appeared on June 15, 2002 in the Baltimore Sun. Another article appeared in the New York Times, June 15, by William Broad and Judith Miller. Report provides new details of Soviet smallpox accident. Washington Post, June 16, 2002. Soviets had 71 smallpox outbreak. Three die 43,000 vaccinated after test of biological weapon. Washington Post, June 17, 2002. Russia's poorly guarded past, security lacking at facilities used for Soviet bioweapons research. Reuters, June 17, 2002. Officials unfazed by Soviet smallpox report. New York Times editorial, June 18, 2002. The Soviet smallpox accident. Now, obviously the timing of all this is very suspect, that all of a sudden a previously undiscovered report of a 1971 Soviet Union's biological weapons program accident would get released right at the same time that Bush is spending so much energy and his government spending so much energy trying to get this smallpox rollout program off the ground. Uh, the timing is extremely suspect. Extremely. I'm frankly surprised that there wasn't any stories like this being circulated or just pretty much made up out of whole cloth leading up to the Iraq war, suggesting that Iraq had a biological weapons lab accident that leaked. Um, it's interesting that this is sort of the primary narrative surrounding smallpox is that Russia accidentally leaked it. And according to this story, which seems completely unverified, 43,000 people in the surrounding area had to be vaccinated and three people died from smallpox. 
Now, let me read you some excerpts from what these articles claim. This one is from the Baltimore Sun. U.S. bioterrorism experts are studying a previously unknown 1971 accident in which a secret Soviet military test of smallpox in aerosol form infected a woman on a ship 10 miles away. The resulting outbreak, which killed three people and sickened seven others, has worrisome implications for the potential of smallpox as a terrorist weapon, said Alan Zelikoff, a senior scientist at Sandia National Laboratories, who has studied a classified Soviet report on the outbreak and interviewed two victims. The long-distance infection provides the first solid evidence, solid evidence, that Soviet scientists produced an aerosol form of smallpox, creating a cloud of virus particles that could cause illness miles downwind. In addition, Zelikov said, the pattern of cases suggests that the strain was especially lethal and relatively resistant to smallpox vaccine. The seven survivors all got sick despite having been vaccinated, according to the Soviet report. The three who died, including two infants, had not been vaccinated. It's now legitimate to ask the question, Zelikov said, is there a vaccine-resistant strain? So now the paradigm of a smallpox bioterror gets even more scary because this guy is suggesting that the Soviet Union might have actually developed a vaccine-resistant strain. Well, who is this guy Zelikov and how did he get access to this supposedly classified Soviet report? And how did he get access to these two alleged witnesses of this event? Well, it seems like Zelikov himself is really sort of in the spook nest of the Washington, D.C. biodefense establishment. Um, he actually testified before 9-11 uh, on June 5th, 2001, the Biological Weapons Convention Protocol Status and Implications. He testified in front of the House along with Robert Cadlick of Emergent Biosolutions. He also testified with Barbara Hatch Rosenberg, who at the time was the project director of chemical biological arms control. Now, if you remember, Barbara Hatch Rosenberg was actually one of the few insiders who seemed to be like seriously trying to figure out the anthrax attacks and wasn't leaving any stone unturned. And somehow, incidentally, Barbara Hatch Rosenberg was the only person early on to make an anthrax event timeline, which included the hoax St. Petersburg letters. So I don't know you know, what her actual deal is. Um, I, I know that she's sketchy in a lot of regards because of her relationship, close relationship with Cadlick and this guy and so forth. But at the same time, I did use some of her work in the previous Anthrax podcast because it all checked out. It was all verifiable. Um, and that was really interesting to me that someone who was such an insider would actually be pushing a narrative that you know, was really going against what the FBI was saying in a, in a strong way. Now, Alan Zelikoff, who I've already quoted to you multiple times, he seems to be an integral player in this narrative because if he was the guy who is the source of this alleged smallpox leak from a bioweapons lag in the Soviet Union, um, he seems like a pretty important person to be the one to deliver that message. We cannot verify any of that information ourselves. This is all, we're all taking the word of these U.S. insiders. At this hearing, this biological weapons convention hearing, Alan Zelikov testified in front of the House, the current turmoil in Russia makes it unlikely that the largest biological weapons program in the world cannot come under control 
protocol or not. But nations of goodwill can immediately address the pervasive problems of infectious disease, which is of concern to all of us. And the Bioweapons Convention provides the best possible forum for meeting that need. Now, just a little bit more detail about this supposed outbreak. Um, according to the Judith Miller and William Broad article for the New York Times, the outbreak struck Arlsk, a port on the RLC that was then the Kazakh Republic. The report says a ship doing ecological research sailed too close to a military smallpox test that sent out a deadly plume of germs infecting a crew member who carried the virus back to the city. Moscow has never acknowledged the outbreak or that it ever tested smallpox in the open air. But late last summer, a former top official in the Soviet germ weapons program spoke of the incident in an interview with a Moscow newspaper. And Kazakh officials have been recently investigating the outbreak's origins. And of course, this article, again, quotes uh, Dr. Zelikov. So Judith Miller leans on Dr. Zelikov, even though in her article, she's claiming that this claim came from a whistleblower uh, of a f from, the f from a former top official in the Soviet germs weapon program who spoke to a Moscow newspaper. I think it's actually, frankly, very odd that Judith Miller doesn't say what that newspaper is and doesn't mention what official she's talking about. The name escapes me right now off the top of my head, but there are really only two of these supposed whistleblowers who come from inside the Soviet germ weapons program. One of them is Ken Alibic. She's already mentioned him freely in all of her previous works. So it's strange that she would just suddenly, in a newer article later down the road, not mention which whistleblower is she talking about? Is she talking about Ken Alibic? Is she talking about the other guy who I've forgotten the name of? She's talking about a new guy, a third guy, an anonymous guy. What Moscow newspaper is this? Where can we see this report? Has this ever been declassified here? Um, I don't know. So if anyone's listening right now, please let me know. Here's some more light that Judith Miller sheds on the actual report. And again, we've gotten a few of these indications in previous things I've read to you, later things I'm going to read to you, how there was promises along, made along the way many times by the Bush administration that they were going to release or declassify reports of things that they would basically launder through the media, including their white paper on how bin Laden was behind 9-11. Colin Powell went in front of press cameras and said, yeah, we're working on a paper. It's going to come out soon. We're going to show you like the whole slam dunk case about why bin Laden was behind it. And then just poof, like a cloud of smoke just disappeared, vanished, uh, only one person like brought it up to Andy Card again. Andy Card just sort of shot it down and acted like that wasn't going to happen. So this is another interesting indication that the Bush administration was sort of leading reporters on and making it seem like, oh yeah, the stuff's going to be declassified, but yeah, just report on it now kind of a thing. But as far as I know, I've never seen this report and I don't think it was ever declassified, but here's what Miller says in her article talking about this this intelligence report. The report was written with the aid of Kazakh officials who blame Moscow for the Arlovsk outbreak. The document, a draft of which the New York Times obtained, is to be made public late this month or early in July. Though it draws in old Soviet studies about the Arlovsk outbreak, the report does not directly tie the epidemic to the weapon test, but infers a link through circumstantial evidence and the perceived weakness of alternative theories such as a natural epidemic. I mean, that sounds awfully weak. So it doesn't even offer any hard evidence. It's just very circumstantial. So like 
this is what all this is coming from. So all this blast of coordinated media reports came from a, basically the government leaking someone probably on, on the inside who wanted to drum up and hype up the smallpox fear mongering leaked this to the New York times and is laundering this through them. Essentially this report actually sounds awfully weak, but I think what's really interesting here that I need to mention again is what he's even said when he testified, when our Ar- Arlikoff testified to the, uh, at the biological weapons convention hearings, he was again sort of touching on the idea of that somehow the Yeltsin administration, the new government of Russia, somehow inherited this highly sophisticated, crazy bioweapons program that had thousands of tons of dried smallpox virus. That is sort of the implication here. Now, I just want you to think about this again. If the U.S. government basically helped take down the Soviet Union and helped install Yeltsin and continued to help prop him up, how does it make sense that we would have just sort of sat idly by and let Yeltsin, this drunk, bumbling, basically plant leader that we helped prop up, inherit this giant bioweapons program and then let it all just disappear? The alleged bioweapon stocks just vanished. How does that even make sense? Does that make sense to you that the U.S. would have all their fingers in all these pies and be probably you know throwing hundreds of millions of dollars in intelligence at the Soviet Union effort to try to undermine, probably billions of dollars, try to undermine them and take down the Soviet Union, but then suddenly they would just not have any of their intelligence apparatus be able to track what happens to basically one of their most dangerous weapons programs under the new government, Yeltsin? It doesn't make any fucking sense. And I was actually trying to get a hold of uh, Mark Ames or Yasha Levine today before I started finishing this recording to just ask them, hey, let me read to you what they're claiming. Does this make any fucking sense? And uh, I wasn't able to get a hold of them, but I'm hoping to by maybe the next episode of this podcast, episode four, and just have them give their honest opinions on what they think of these claims that we just sort of let Yeltsin take control of this. Basically what they're saying is the world's most sophisticated, dangerous biological weapons program, and then just let all the stocks disappear under our noses. Does that make any sense? And how, how does that make sense? Now, right after this barrage of fear-mongery, unverified stories comes out with this laundered, leaked U.S. intelligence thing about the Soviet Union's smallpox accidental outbreak, um, we, we, we move towards very quickly this panel, the CDC panel. They commissioned a group of health experts, doctors, to weigh the options of what the smallpox vaccination rollout should actually be. Should it be mandatory? Should it be voluntary? Should we make it available to everyone or just healthcare workers? Um, Should we only do ring vaccination, which was the current on-the-book CDC policy for what would happen if a smallpox outbreak happened? Well, this panel to decide these things and then to give their findings back to the CDC and the U.S. government was coming up very soon. It was already scheduled for the end of June. So leading up to this panel, uh, the Wall Street Journal decides to run an editorial taking the extremely gross position that voluntary vaccination uh, isn't good enough um, and that it actually we it drastically outweighs any of the risks to just basically mandatory vaccinate everyone. The benefit of saving so many lives from 
uh, a smallpox max vaccination just outraised the risks of killing people with it with the vaccine out of the gates. Uh, this is what the editorial says: Known stockpiles of the smallpox virus are few, but that's what also was said about anthrax. Mr. Bicknell posits a case where half the population is put at risk. Assuming the lowest historical fatality rates and good medical care, we could still see 100 to 100,000 to 1 million deaths. Compare that to the vaccination risk. A less than 1 per million death rate would mean about 180 total deaths if everyone chose to be vaccinated. This is about the number of people killed in traffic accidents every 1.5 days. And just for more disgustingness, the actual article editorial is titled The Public Health Priesthood, making it seem like the people who are trying to advocate against mass vaccination or some kind of priesthood dogmatics that refuse to listen to reason, that taking on over 200 instant deaths from an unnecessary vaccine is just folly. It's stupid. They're a priesthood. These fucking dogmatics don't want to just instantly kill 200 people to save so many lives. I mean, that's pretty much the attitude this editorial is taking. It's pretty fucking disgusting. Now, actually, technically, I'm... I, I'm incorrect. This guy is not arguing for mandatory vaccination, but he is strongly advocating for everybody to get the smallpox vaccination and make it available to everyone in the public. The tutorial came out on June 19, 2002 in the Wall Street Journal. Just a day after this editorial comes out, the news starts reporting on the actual panel's decision-making. And it reports on the panels currently debating the concept. So in the New York Times, June 20th, 2002, they run a headline saying, Panel Debates Revising U.S. Policy on Smallpox Shots. Dr. Donald Miller, who was not a member of the panel but was invited to speak at the public hearing, he said the panel's recommendation, quote, hinges on one question. Is the threat real or not? And Dr. Donald J. Miller challenge the government to provide evidence of anything having to do with an, an imminent threat. Is this really something that they believe is coming or is it just complete hooey? And he says, our government leaders are very coy about this, adding that the government has sometimes acted as though the threat was real and at other times as though it was imaginary. We are entitled to all the facts to make a sound decision, Dr. Millar said. That's one of the more cogent just logical, basic pushbacks we've seen against this narrative so far. He's not saying, they're not trying to do like a cold equations, mathematical, weighing the risks and benefits. He's zooming out and being like, wait a second, why are they fucking with us here? Why are they being so coy? Can they just tell us what's going on here? And I think that that's honestly a smarter way to approach it instead of getting trapped in the framing like a lot of these doctors did of trying to be like, no, the risks will not outweigh the benefits or the risks will outweigh the benefits. You're already sort of getting into a framing trap of not addressing the initial thing. It's like, why? What is this for? Just because we got hit with an anthrax attack that happened to come from our own biological weapons lab, this is all of a sudden credible? No, that's not enough reason. Why were they pushing this? And unfortunately, People were never really given any answers, and they were just expected to believe that somehow this was something that we needed to debate. Even though initially there was nothing seriously shown to us uh, that this needed to be debated. <laughs> now, 
Now, just a day later, this panel actually unanimously decided something against what the Bush administration, I'm sure, wanted. Um, from the New York Times, panel rejects immunizing all against a smallpox outbreak. June 21st, 2002, a panel of specialists advising the federal government on smallpox unanimously rejected a proposal today to offer vaccines to every American. Instead, the panel recommended immunizing only the estimated 15,000 healthcare and law enforcement workers who would be the most likely to respond to a biological attack and come in contact with the victims. In the event of an attack, the panel said, the government should follow the healthcare strategy known as ring vaccination, in which victims are isolated and those with whom they might have direct contact with are also vaccinated. So the only difference that this panel agreed on between what was current and former policy, like what, what's the policy change here? Very little change. Uh, the only change was this panel decided that ring vaccination as it stood on the CDC's current you know, policy plans was good enough and that we should only make smallpox available to people in the healthcare sector whose job it would be to like respond to a smallpox outbreak if one were to happen, which would only amount to about 15,000 people. This is significantly lower than the almost 250 million doses that Tommy Thompson and, uh, you know, the CDC, or sorry, the NIH and the Pentagon had commissioned to be made for soldiers and the general public. So this must have been a huge blow internally in in terms of the PR effort on the Bush administration's part. Now, the New York Times um, even runs an article uh, pushing back on the idea that this 15,000 first responders idea of being given the smallpox vaccine is maybe not a good idea either. Um, The New York Times runs an article on June 22nd, 2002, that says smallpox proposal raises ethical issues. And what are those ethical issues? Well, the ethical issues say that some who receive this vaccine out of the 15,000 may suffer serious, potentially even deadly complications. Steps may also have to be taken to protect certain people who come in contact with others who receive the vaccine, which infects recipients with live vaccinia virus, a relative of smallpox. Because those vaccinated can shed this virus, they can spread its smallpox protection as well as its complications. And just so you know technically what this panel was called, it was called the Advisory Committee on Immunization Practices. Now, here's what's odd, too. This, is, this article sheds some new light on how they try to mitigate smallpox vaccine side effects and how it's basically like a non-starter. So, like, it's just out of the gates. Yeah. Even though we have ways to mitigate, we have medications actually, uh, to mitigate the side effects from the smallpox vaccine. There's only 600 doses of them in like the supply chain. So according to this article, there was only 600 available doses of what they call vaccine immune globulin, which is derived from the people, which is derived from the blood of people who have been vaccinated against smallpox. Now, this is, it gets even scarier. Uh, sore arms, swollen lymph nodes, and high fever can occur in up to 50% of the recipients of the smallpox vaccine. Because the vaccinia is live, it can spread to cause severe skin infections, sometimes destroying tissue and causing permanent disability. Or vaccinia can be spread just to the eye and permanently blind. 
Vaccinia can also cause brain damage from encephalitis in about 1 in 100,000 vaccination recipients and death in about 1 in 1 million recipients. That's pretty fucking crazy. They take a quote from a doctor in this article trying to say that it's actually not as bad as that. Um, it says, although many of the 11,000 vaccine recipients since, since 1983 have had to stay out of work for a few days, none have needed vaccine immune globulin. But when about 125 healthcare workers were vaccinated at the disease centers last fall, doctors who gave the injections were surprised by the number and severity of adverse reactions. Many recipients were treated with antibiotics in the erroneous belief that the site of vaccination had become infected. Older doctors who had given smallpox vaccine in decades past told their younger colleagues that the skin reactions were from the vaccine. Doctors who conducted recent trials to test their safety and effectiveness of diluting the vaccine had a similar experience. It also says that they basically need to increase this sort of bureaucratic um, infrastructure significantly because it would only make sense to give people an HIV test or to have them have a negative HIV test proven before they take the smallpox vaccine because they could have extremely adverse reactions if they had HIV and were given the vaccine. But I mean, think about that, how that's, that's an insane amount of infrastructure. They would, it would be like having to give everyone a blood test before the COVID vaccine now, which I mean, technically would probably actually provide more safety the more we knew about how certain immunocompromised people would react badly to the vaccine. But I mean, the government's not going to spend that much money. It's an insane amount of money to help keep a certain sector of the population safe. Now, luckily, we get our first major news report. Uh, it's a short one uh, by Dan Rather from CBS News, just and straight up announcing that these advisory groups uh, advocated against the idea of vaccinating the general public for smallpox. In the battle against bioterror, federal health officials today rejected the idea of vaccinating the general public against smallpox. The vaccine itself causes many side effects, including some deaths. So instead, the new plan is to inoculate so-called first responders, medical and other emergency teams that would be sent to contain and investigate any smallpox outbreak. NBC News also runs a segment echoing the same stuff as Dan Rather on CBS News in the same evening. Their segment seems to lean a little bit more into how this advisory panel decided against because of how severe the side effects would be. And one more note on the subject of terrorism tonight. A government advisory panel has recommended against vaccinating all Americans for smallpox. Instead, it is recommending the shots be given to special teams of people in each state who would be designated the first to respond in case of a bioterrorism attack. Experts say it is not a question of supply. There would be enough vaccine to go around. The problem is the vaccine itself carries the risk of severe side effects, even death. Now, towards the end of June is when the news about the smallpox vaccine programs, what the CDC was sponsoring, started to get really sketchy. and frankly, really crazy. It's really crazy to look back on something published in 2002 and think, wow, they would never put this in a mainstream publication anymore. Like it's just, it's too revealing. It's, it's too transparent in a way that I guess back in 2002 seemed like something that uh, would be sellable to the American public. I mean, reading back on it now, it just sounds completely fucking lunatic. 
like Dr. Strangelove level behavior. It's absolutely off the fucking rails. The Wall Street Journal ran an article in June 2002 by Marilyn Chase, headline, In strictest security, scientists infect monkeys with smallpox. In an experiment unfolding under tight security, six rust and silver monkeys this past week grew listless, refused to eat, and broke out in blisters. Four have become sick and two have died. Now, it says this took place in Atlanta. Now, I guess this work was done at the hot suite at the CDC. Now, I actually uh, was incorrect. I might have misspoken earlier and said this was being done at Fort Detrick and at U.S. Amherst. This is actually being done at the CDC. And this is just the continuing experiments that were being sponsored by the CDC to try to create, uh, I guess they were trying to create antiviral treatments for smallpox, not new vaccines specifically with this experiment. What did they do first when they were trying to create antivirals and test it on these monkeys? Well, first, it seems like their goal was to create a super, super form of smallpox. So when we're talking, quote unquote, biodefense, in this CDC experiment, this is what they were doing. Dr. Jarling has courted controversy by giving monkeys as many as one million times the dose that is infectious to humans, I'm talking about smallpox, and by exposing them in a different way. People contracted smallpox by inhaling the virus, but the monkeys used in this experiment don't get smallpox in nature. Previous aerosol exposures produced only a mild, non-lethal rash. To try to infect monkeys with lethal smallpox last year, Dr. Jarling double-dosed them with aerosol and intravenous virus using a super virulent strain, India-1, the strain of choice of former Soviet germ warriors. If anything, it worked too well. The monkeys weighing from 6 to 28 pounds were anesthetized, both for their comfort and workers' safety. You don't want a monkey who can bite, scratch, or get off the table and swing from the water pipes, he says, when you're holding 1 billion infectious virus particles. The sedated animals didn't so much as twitch as five team members oversaw the infusion. Dr. Jarling, Army drug researcher John Huggins, a veterinary pathologist, an animal technician, and an animal caretaker. After securing the animals under protective tents, the five underwent an eight-minute chemical decontamination of their suits, then took soap and water showers. Now the team is monitoring the disease's downward spiral. We're not interested in killing monkeys capriciously, Dr. Darling says. Sometimes I sit bolt upright in the middle of the night. Then I remember why I'm doing this. I do have a conscience. I mean, so when we're talking about gain-of-function research, you know, being this thing that gets all this specific attention these days as being like something that the U.S. government's toying around with or that other labs around the world are toying around with that's a really dangerous type of experiment to be doing on viruses— I don't even know if what I just read to you and just described to you is under the umbrella of gain of function. I, I technically don't even think it would be by just overdosing an animal subject over and over and over again with a million times the like normal dose of a smallpox virus. They were able to create super lethal, and this is something that I'm just paraphrasing from other parts of the article now. They're able to create super lethal smallpox in animals that instead of only killing 30% of the animals it was infected with, like normal smallpox would, this super virulent strain that they were able to create by 
giving a million times the normal viral load of smallpox to an animal subject, uh, killed up to 100%, 80 to 100% of the subjects. And technically speaking, I don't think this would be called gain of function. I mean, even though the virus, by maybe you know that much virus going into an animal subject, would maybe indirectly cause a gain of function in that virus. I, I mean, I mean, I'm assuming that's maybe what's happening indirectly. I don't even think that's technically gain of function research. That's just like brute force. Let's give this monkey a shitload of fucking smallpox. Let's just and and I read to you that article before about how much smallpox they were giving these monkeys. Well, this tells you exactly how much a million times. On July 6, 2002, ABC News, Evening News runs a segment talking about the official announcement to vaccinate 500,000 emergency workers and healthcare professionals against smallpox. And this was an official announcement by the Bush administration that day. But they end the segment by saying that Iraq may have the virus, that Iraq may have smallpox. This is about a year before the U.S. decides to invade Iraq. And keep in mind, ABC News' Brian Ross was the same network that ran the Iraq may have been behind the 2001 anthrax mailing segment by saying that there was bentonite found in the anthrax in those envelopes that ties it to the Iraq Biological Weapons Program. So ABC News already has a history of linking Iraq to biological weapons. So who are they getting this Who's feeding them this narrative is the question. The U.S. government will soon vaccinate half a million healthcare and emergency workers against smallpox, a precaution against a possible bioterrorist attack. The New York Times reports the government plan comes amid continued talk in Washington of war against Iraq. Terrorism experts suspect Iraq may be stockpiling the virus. Now, with this announcement, that 500,000 healthcare workers are going to be vaccinated. This idea that Iraq had the virus was linked together with it. Now, it's unclear exactly where this came from at the federal level, but a much longer New York Times piece about this announcement comes out on July 7th. And it's written by Judith Miller's normal co-writer and the, one of the co-writers of her book, Germs, William J. Broad. The article is U.S. to vaccinate 500,000 workers against smallpox. The federal government will soon vaccinate roughly a half a million healthcare and emergency workers against smallpox as a precaution against a bioterrorist attack, federal officials said. Um, what's strange is I looked at this whole article and they don't name any specific federal officials who said, like, who announced this. Like, what was the actual official announcement for this? So it's a little elusive. Um, and it does seem to be spiked with, again, this Iraq may have smallpox narrative. Let me read you more of the article. The plan to increase the number of first responders who received the vaccination to roughly 500,000 from 15,000 and to prepare for a mass undertaking of vaccinations in effect acknowledges that the government's existing program is insufficient to fight a large outbreak. Officials said the vaccination of hospital workers and smallpox response teams to begin fairly soon would help train health professionals in smallpox vaccination and, and educate the public to the attendant risks. The White House, Defense Department, and other federal agencies are involved 
in the vaccination planning. Quote, everyone is aware, unquote, an administration official said. Again, this article is acting really coy. It's like, which administration official? Which federal officials? Why is this sort of being coyly announced like this? Everything seemed rather official and sort of going through all the proper channels and, and kind of takes an odd turn here. And maybe it's because this character gets involved, who is quite suspicious and who I've talked about a lot before in our Anthrax episodes. Jerome Hauer, Acting Assistant Secretary for Emergency Preparedness at the Department of Health and Human Services, said the agency hoped to send planning documents on how to best conduct mass vaccination to sites and states in the next week or two. Mr. Hauer added that logistics changes to that end were underway at the CDC and prevention in Atlanta. Now, this is when it gets sort of neocon propaganda insert. The government's new vaccination safeguards come amid continued talk in Washington of war against Iraq, which terrorism experts suspect of maintaining clandestine stocks of the smallpox virus as well as growing criticism of the government's limited plan. Only Russia and the United States have declared stocks of the virus. Dr. Alan Zelikoff, a smallpox expert at Sandia National Laboratories, reported that he and experts from the Monterey Institute of National Studies had linked a 1971 outbreak in the Kazakh Republic to a Soviet field test of weaponized smallpox. Dr. Zelikoff, a physician, quoted a former Soviet official as saying the accident occurred when a plume of smallpox germs sailed about nine miles on the wind. By the meeting's end, medical experts were questioning not only the ring vaccination plan, but also federal assertions that the smallpox threat is low. I mean, this is just such an odd concept. It's like, obviously, the Bush administration was pushing this and doing it in sort of stealth and sketchy ways from behind the scenes. You know, Bush literally up until this point has only mentioned smallpox once. But yet this article by William Broad, it says the federal assertions that the smallpox is low. Well, the federal government, the Bush administration, the ones who started the ball rolling on this. So just because the Bush administration has been like throttling up and down the, you know, the terror alert level uh, with this specifically, because it seems like they had been sort of this whole time. It's funny how that that's how like sort of captured people were that it's it's like this is it's almost like the raising, you know, throttling the terror alert level just to keep people all complacent and mind fucked. So I just find that wording interesting that William Broad makes it seem like the medical experts were questioning the federal government's assertions that the smallpox threat is low. I mean, in reality, if you really zoom out from it all, federal government's assertions that the smallpox threat is real and is high enough that we need to get vaccinated. That's that that hits a threshold of being pretty goddamn high. So what do you mean low? I mean, even though it was really low, it's it was non-existent in reality. But that, I just think this is a manipulative sort of way to frame that. The article continues. Dr. Kenneth I. Burns, this is someone that we haven't heard from yet in this narrative. Uh, but we have heard from Dr. Zelikoff a lot, who seems to be someone who's like integral in deploying this Soviet Union smallpox biolab release narrative. But this is a new guy that I haven't heard before come up in this. Dr. Kenneth I. Burns, the president of Mount Sinai Medical Center in New York City, said he judged the probability that Iraq possessed weaponized smallpox as reasonably high 
and that Saddam Hussein would use such germs in a war against the United States as quite high. That's the confounding issue we all face, Dr. Burns told the forum. Frank public discussion of the Iraq threat, he added, is absolutely essential. I mean, again, frank public discussion, sort of acting like it's like concern trolling. It's like, oh, it's not frank to be like, where's the threat? The only frank uh, public discussion is one that basically overhypes and inflates this imaginary threat. Uh, Very fascinating spin. William Broad, I know little about compared to Judith Miller, but if he was her co-writer on germs, I would say he's also very suspicious. And he's basically just like a tool for some kind of you know, government insider that was like steering him around or leaking things to him and Miller and her other co-writer. I think his, his name was Engelberg, Stephen Engelberg, I want to say. On July 31st from USA Today, U.S. readies offensive against smallpox threat. In Texas, volunteers are rolling up their sleeve for science, letting themselves be immunized with smallpox vaccine that has been sitting in lab freezers for 40 years. At the National Institutes of Health in Maryland, researchers are planning to test old stocks of smallpox vaccine on children ages 2 to 5. More studies are underway to test a new vaccine being made as fast as possible under a contract with the U.S. government. It talks about how the anthrax letter attacks increased sort of the rationale for sort of taking all this action on a potential smallpox attack. But this is basically them talking about how they're doing things to ration the supply. Not just dilution studies, but now they're doing a study at the NIH in Maryland. Uh, They're doing a study on two to five-year-old children, which I didn't even know they were allowed to do this, even volunteers. You you can't consent as a two to five-year-old child for a medical experiment like this, so the parents must... I mean, it's just very surreal. Um, And they're testing the old smallpox vaccine because... In case of, I guess, Acambus and these other companies not making enough in time. This article also comments on sort of the weird, contradictory nature of the federal government spending so much energy uh, behind this rollout, but simultaneously saying it's not imminent. Now federal health officials, while stressing there is no hint of an increased threat, are accelerating research and pushing for a plan to protect Americans from bioterrorism. The greatest fear is smallpox. Federal officials insist there is no new threat of a smallpox attack, but there has been great urgency to get the plan approved. In fact, Teamsters spokesperson Rob Black says the union has discussed the possibility of vaccinating truck drivers for smallpox. Teamster truck drivers cross our country every day. If these workers have fears of smallpox, if there is an incident of bioterrorism, to have these Teamster members not transporting the goods that keep our country going could obviously have a very bad effect on our economy, he says. On August 9th, 2002, this might be one of the first editorials or long-form pieces written on the pros and cons of the smallpox vaccination rollout plan by a sitting politician. GOP Senator Bill Frist basically writes a pro-smallpox vaccination rollout editorial. It starts like this. The good news is that President Bush has signed into law legislation that would enhance our response to a smallpox attack. Increased federal tax dollars will be spent to improve America's long-neglected public health defense at the local, state, and national levels. Who should receive this vaccine and when? 
With the cooperation of major drug companies, large quantities of vaccine are being manufactured and stockpiled, enough to vaccinate every person in America. Allowing individuals to choose whether to get smallpox vaccinations will help reduce the threat of biological terrorism. As soon as sufficient quantities of licensed vaccine become available, most likely within 18 months, we should allow every American to make an informed choice as to whether to be vaccinated. We should immediately vaccinate all military personnel at a high risk of exposure and allow voluntary vaccinations for those at lower risk. Health professionals and other first responders should also be vaccinated on a voluntary basis. This comprehensive smallpox vaccination policy recognizes the very real risks we face of a bioterror attack. It would ensure those that are at the highest risk of exposure receive the vaccine first at the same time. I believe that the threat of a smallpox attack outweighs the risks of providing smallpox vaccinations to a well-informed public. Such a policy is a sensible health response that would enhance our national security. On August 29th, a study comes out from the University of North Carolina saying that immunity conferred by smallpox vaccine may last longer than had been thought, at least for some people. The study involved blood samples from 14 individuals. 13 had been vaccinated 1 to 35 years earlier, and one had never been vaccinated. The researchers exposed the cells to vaccinia virus, a relative of the smallpox virus. This is actually contradictory information that seems to show the opposite of what a previous study said. The immunization doesn't, you know, if you got immunized uh, three years ago, even, uh, it might not be enough. Uh, this study is saying that immunization from like even 30 years ago can still prevent smallpox infection. Now, I feel like this is when the PR apparatus for whatever this was sort of got messed up. Uh, it was taken out of the hands of people like CDC, Fauci, Tommy Thompson, and Health and Human Services, and given over to, basically, uh, it seems like Jerome Hauer was the one who devised the smallpox vaccination manual that was distributed to all 50 state governments. And this takes place about a month after the story I just read you. On September 23rd, 2002, were issued this manual, devised mostly by Jerome Hauer, working under Tommy Thompson. Now, this is from the Washington Post, September 23rd, 2002. It says, federal health officials will be issued detailed guidelines today for vaccinating the entire U.S. population against smallpox within five days of an outbreak of the dreaded disease. Intended as a blueprint for state and local health officials nationwide, the unprecedented move reveals a growing belief within the Bush administration that even one case of smallpox anywhere in the Western Hemisphere would signify a terrorist assault and should therefore trigger a far more massive response than officials had previously suggested, said two experts involved in the planning. The manual being sent to health commissioners in the 50 states and the District of Columbia offers advice on how to operate mass vaccination clinics. It offers suggestions on utilizing the National Guard, recruiting translators, building intricate data systems, and contending with extreme weather conditions. This is a very detailed, thoughtful recipe for response to a bioterror incident, said Michael Osterholm a public health expert at the University of Minnesota who is advising the federal government. 
Using the template, states and cities should be able to devise plans for vaccinating the largest amount of people in the shortest time possible, he said. Only the United States and Russia are known to possess stocks of the virus, but security experts fear a hostile nation such as Iraq may have acquired a cache of the virus. Vice President Cheney has contended the risk of attack may necessitate inoculating every American as a protective measure. One of the real concerns about Saddam Hussein, as well as his biological weapons capability, said Cheney recently on NBC's Meet the Press. The fact that he may at some point try to use smallpox, anthrax, plague, or some other kind of biological agent against other nations, possibly even including the United States. The article continues. The manual, which is almost 100 pages, was developed in consultation with local health officers, medical societies, the military, and businesses such as UPS and Federal Express that have logistical expertise, said an advisor to Thompson. Much of its contents was based on a previous large-scale vaccination program, such as the 1995 meningitis outbreak in Mankato, Minnesota, in which 26,000 people were inoculated in four days. Until a decision is made on pre-vaccination, Hauer said, our efforts to continue to focus on bioterrorism detection and response. Now, this is where it gets interesting because, you know, you would think that this manual would be easy to obtain. It's a 100-page manual that was distributed to all these states. It seems like Washington Post had a copy of it. But it says administration officials refuse to release the manual until state health commissioners receive it. But in interviews with the Washington Post, several described the scenario for responding to a smallpox attack. Well, actually, it sounds like the Washington Post did not get a copy of the actual manual itself. They're just getting relayed information about what's in it from anonymous sources again. Now, on this same evening, Dan Rather on CBS News uh, does an eerily vague report about how the government just released a bioterror plan to vaccinate all Americans against smallpox within one week, if necessary. Uh, but for now, just healthcare workers. But the way he words it, it almost seems like he's talking about, like, this is coming now, and they're going to try to do it, like, now. Instead of what the manual seems to say, which is it's in response to if an, an attack happened. So this is when the PR apparatus started to get a little messy and strange, is... If you had been following this news up until this Dan Rather report, you might just assume that in a couple of weeks, there is going to be like a mandatory smallpox vaccination program for every American. But for now, it's only just healthcare workers. So check out this clip from September 23rd, 2002 from CBS News. The government has issued a bioterror plan that would vaccinate all Americans against smallpox within one week if necessary. At least that is the theory. This overall strategy is unchanged. Only so-called first responders are being vaccinated for now. The emergency teams and hospital workers who would deal with the smallpox outbreak. This might be the most important public appearance by a federal official, a Bush official, uh, to give out information about what this smallpox vaccination response plan was going to be. And this service was performed by none other than Kroll Associates, SAIC, top dog, Jerome Hauer. And Jerome Hauer uh, goes on C-SPAN for about an hour and a half to answer viewers' questions and really fearmonger and hype up this idea that smallpox 
was definitely a possibility that it could hit us really at any time and that Iraq uh, might be behind such an attack. And he's also simultaneously responding to questions about what will happen if we attack Iraq and they respond with some kind of biological weapon or if we accidentally bomb a biological weapons facility and we accidentally cause an outbreak by like releasing smallpox. So all these things get discussed. But I think what's particularly important about this is this might be the most lengthy, most direct as far as like the neocon propaganda matrix from within the Bush administration being mixed together with this smallpox vaccination rollout plan in sort of a public package. And it's being delivered by this guy who has all these really shady connections to 9-11. He's the guy who hired John O'Neill to do World Trade Center security. Uh, He was partly responsible for the OEM command bunker at World Trade Center 7, uh, highly involved with Rudy Giuliani's bioterrorism drills right after 9-11, like Tripod 2. Um, I mean, this guy is pretty much as like deep state, spook, weird figure as it gets. And this is him actually sort of being the public face of this plan. So I think that this interview is actually so important that I'm going to play for you a large amount of clips from it. And I'm going to comment Uh, intermittently in between these clips. So for the next 20 minutes of the podcast, I'm going to break down this really creepy interview with, let's just say it, 9-11 suspect and deep state player, Jerome Hauer. Jerome Hauer is the acting assistant secretary at Health and Human Services for Public Health Emergency Preparedness. Welcome to the program. Thanks, Ron. And he is here today to talk about the federal government's plan for vaccinating Americans in the event of biological attack using smallpox, which uh, got some play in the papers this week uh, on the front page of USA Today. U.S. ramps up bioterror plan. Tell us, what is the government's plan for vaccinating Americans? Well, what this uh, plan is, is uh, a post-event plan. Um, It um, allows the states uh, to uh, do an enormous amount of Uh, planning at the local level, and again, most of the work would have to be done at the local level. The clinics uh, that would have to be set up uh, have to be set up at the local level. This plan uh, gives them a lot of guidance in how to, in a very short period of time, set up the clinics, uh, develop the logistical infrastructure necessary uh, to uh, execute the plan, get the volunteers they need, have people trained to do the vaccinations, so that um, in the you know, the event that we do uh, have one of these horrific events, uh, we uh, are prepared as a nation uh, to uh, rapidly vaccinate a large number of people quickly. What events would trigger the use of such a plan? Well, uh, there's been a lot of debate about that. There's been uh, a lot of debate as to whether we would, uh, uh, you know, whether uh, something overseas. Uh, certainly, um, if we had uh, one in one case of uh, uh, smallpox anywhere in the United States, uh, we would begin vaccination right away. Where the debate comes in is whether we start with ring vaccination or whether we do mass vaccination. Um, in general, what we would do is start with ring and then depending on how many people we see that have potentially been exposed or how many other sentinel cases there are, we might start mass vaccination quite early rather than just relying on uh, ring vaccination. Smallpox, if, uh, if somebody uh, gets a disease, uh, the, the, there's about a, a 30% uh, case fatality rate with it. Now, as you can already hear from this clip, Jerome Hauer 
is the inside man on this program, on this smallpox vaccination rollout program. And as you heard the C-SPAN host say that this has been getting a lot of play in the news recently, the USA Today put on the front page of their paper with the headline, U.S. Ramps Up Bioterror Plan. And it doesn't seem like Jerome Howard is here to actually roll out what was largely being talked about, which is a preventative mass vaccination rollout program before any attack occurs. It seems like his manual that he's laying out here and that he's going to continue to lay out because I'm going to play a lot more clips from him is all about just in the event of a smallpox attack. But what does this do psychologically? It just makes this situation seem that much more serious, even though the Bush administration is sort of playing a double game where they're saying there's no imminent threat having to do with smallpox. They're putting out a manual and distributing it to all 50 states about how to deal with a smallpox attack. Not even in the context of what to do if there's a smallpox outbreak, but in the context of specifically a bioterrorism attack and a completely imaginary neocon pipe dream scenario. Continuing. We're taking calls for Jerome Hauer from HHS on uh, public health and emergency preparedness with regards to the plan to vaccinate Americans in case of a smallpox attack. Now, we have a graphic that um, illustrates some of the uh, parts of the vaccination plan. Okay. Um, states... Uh, would each set up 20 clinics per state, and uh, the clinics would be open 16 hours a day. 75 million vaccine doses shipped to states in one day, and the rest of the vaccine would be delivered within five days. Mm -hmm. That is quite an enormous undertaking. Yeah, it's an aggressive plan, but uh, we have to realize that, um, first of all, if we were to see smallpox in the United States at this point in time, we would have to in assume that it was the act of um, a, a, a terrorist. Um, we haven't seen smallpox in the United States um, in, in decades. We stopped vaccinating in the United States in 1972. So at this point in time, if the disease were to reemerge, we would have to assume that one, that if it was emerging in one city, the potential for it emerging in multiple cities was there. So we would have to be very aggressive in uh, getting vaccine to cities, in getting clinics open. And in some cities, some states, 20 might not be enough. This is a model plan uh, that basically gives some guidelines on how to do it if you want to do a million people. And Russia had an aggressive uh, smallpox uh, weaponization program. Uh, we have some indication that uh, Iraq uh, has worked on smallpox and possibly uh, possesses uh, uh, the virus. So uh, we feel that uh, because the uh, virus uh, might wind up in the hands of people who want to harm this uh, country uh, and, and want to do us ill, uh, that it uh, is prudent to look at uh, ways of protecting the population again so that if in some fact something happens, uh, we can rapidly respond uh, to, to an outbreak. Now, as you've been hearing throughout this podcast, the Iraq war propaganda buildup was already in full swing by this time. The Bush administration, all the media was hearing rumblings that Iraq was going to be next, even though the invasion would not take place until April 2003. This is fall of 2002. Um, this seems to be, again, a psychological hammer blow 
to just continue to amp up the fear levels and make it about Iraq. Jerome Hauer is making this seem like Iraq may have the virus. He's making sure to use the word may instead of we have intelligence that says he's keeping it very vague on purpose, very Bush-like WMDs, um, but in this case, very specific WMD, smallpox. Continuing. So uh, the government, uh, in fact, uh, the president and the secretary have been proactive in uh, looking at ways to protect the American people, and this is another step towards doing that. When you're dealing with public health issues like this, cost uh, is not an issue. It's not clear if he means another step towards doing a preventative mass vaccination program, which was also simultaneously being discussed. That's what it seemed like was going to be rolled out with this manual, but it wasn't exactly that. But yet it still has a similar psychological impact. But what Jerome Hauer is saying right here is that the Secretary of Health and Human Services, Tommy Thompson, and Bush have been proactively looking at this stuff. Well, yeah, we know that this is who it's coming from, is it's coming from the Bush administration, the White House, directly. He's also, again, nesting this all under the guise of this is a public health measure. I mean, of course, it's a public health measure. We're not going to spare any expense because it's for the public good. You know, again, sort of adding to the realism of this completely imaginary, hyped up terror attack via smallpox. The other, I have a question that, you know, a possibility question. See how you can answer this for me. uh, in, In Iraq, they're saying they have all these awful diseases, you know, germ warfare. Suppose we bomb them and bomb where this stuff is and it's put into the air. How are you going to protect anybody in a case like this? That's actually uh, one of the things that um, is, as you look at uh, uh, various scenarios, is always considered. But uh, one of the uh, things we have to recognize is that uh, usually when bombing occurs is a fairly um, a hot fire, and that hot fire uh, usually winds up killing uh, the majority of the virus, uh, if not all of it. Um, and uh, obviously, and I, again, I'm not involved in um, anything having to do with uh, uh, planning uh, various scenarios around the world, as I, I, I don't work for the Defense Department. Uh, but I know as we've gone through war games over the years, not just Iraq, but um, around the world, thinking about these issues, uh, the issue of uh, releasing either chemical or biological agents during a scenario always comes up. And how do you protect soldiers? How do you protect downwind populations uh, is uh, part of the thinking and planning. I mean, they just jumped from basically saying that in case of a smallpox bioterror attack to a woman basically just calling in and connecting the dots herself assuming we're already going to go into Iraq and somehow in her mind's gotten, you know, this idea into her head that, uh, that the military is going to be like bombing their biological weapons facilities. Cause it really is somehow about getting Iraq some BMDs and Jerome Howard's here just totally going along with this thought uh, process saying that, yeah, if we drop bombs on these biological weapons facilities in Iraq, then the hot fire is going to kill the virus. No biggie. I mean, it's just so fascinating, you know, no Bush official is directly saying these things and putting them all together, but the public infers all that. 
And that's what makes me go back to this point that I think the Bush administration was much more clever in deploying this propaganda than people give them credit for. And I still, to this day, I'm not sure who devised that method of doing it. To be very, very vague on purpose so that people would read into things and sort of like create this feedback loop of, you know, seeding things out, but not being super specific, not saying that Iraq has this stuff for sure, but that they may have it. Whose order puts this plan into effect? Uh, the Secretary of Health and the President. If, in fact, uh, the, we had a, a case of smallpox anywhere in the country, um, the Secretary um, uh, is, uh, has the overall responsibility uh, for public health. Uh, he would uh, talk with the President, uh, and uh, they talk very frequently about this issue. The President has been very engaged in this issue and uh, is uh, clearly concerned about it. And, uh, they would make a decision as to how to move forward and how aggressively we need. So here Jerome Hauer is making it very clear that George W. Bush himself would be the one who would basically trigger this into action whenever he wanted to, depending on the situation. How much of your input goes into that decision? Well, I'm obviously, uh, uh, I oversee those programs and uh, I, I uh, would be, you know, any, any decisions made, uh, and Julie and I and the secretary uh, uh, would be uh, clearly uh, talking quite a bit about it. It, uh, it would be a difficult decision, but it would not take long to make because based on the evidence, we, would, uh, we, we could not, um, uh, you know, this is not a time for uh, uh, bureaucracy. Uh, when an event like this occurs, you have to be ready to respond. One interesting reaction there, he's, he seems to get uncomfortable and not be really specific about what his actual role in this is. Even though, from what I understand, he's the one who primarily wrote this manual that's being distributed. And the Bush administration seems to want to send him out to fill in the most detail about what the actual plans on paper are. But he does seem to get a little uncomfortable. And he doesn't really reveal exactly what his role is. But then he sort of skips to a different topic. He sort of changes the topic to this idea that we would, again, take this very, very seriously and the red tape would be eliminated. We wouldn't worry about bureaucracy. We'd just go forward with this necessary plan. Well, that sort of implies things like they would, they would have to circumvent civil liberties. They would have to circumvent normal testing protocols for new vaccines and rush them through. That's what that kind of stuff means. I think that's basically what he's saying about the quote-unquote bureaucracy. Have you already been vaccinated? Um, I have not. Um, and um, I, uh, at this point in time, uh, will, uh, you know, wait. Um, I, uh, you know, I just at this point in time don't know that, uh, that I need to be vaccinated now. So I'll wait and see what happens. But um, gets really uncomfortable when just asked a direct question that, you know, should be pretty easy to answer. And I think he realizes in his attempt to answer the question, he's sort of tripping over his own words because he realizes that, well, if it's not imminent enough, if this is not serious enough of a threat for the guy who's in charge of this policy to get vaccinated, then maybe that really means it's not that serious. And I think midway through trying to answer that, he sort of realizes that and, you know, kind of tries to give this careful answer. But on the other hand, I'm not giving this C-SPAN reporter any credit at all for being like adversarial or questioning his logic. I mean, 
C-SPAN is basically just letting them spew this propaganda out with virtually no critical pushback at all. I mean, these are really the only two critical seeming questions, only because Jerome Howard gets uncomfortable. They, they really are just basic questions. You know, are you vaccinated? What's your role in this? But Jerome, Jerome Howard does seem to get uncomfortable with both questions. We, uh, we continue to test this plan. Uh, we do tabletop exercises. So again, in the unlikely event that something happens, we're going to be ready to respond. We'll make the decision quickly. Um, and I, I would envision from the time we recognize that we have a case of smallpox anywhere in the United States, our decisions will be made in, in hours. This is him continuing to change the subject and just sort of almost brag about how you know, powerful and strong this response is going to be. One revealing thing he says in that string of comments where he's trying to change the subject is that they do tabletop exercises of this all the time. Who? Tabletop exercises. I mean, like, what kind? What are they called? Uh, how many of these tabletop exercises have they ran on smallpox? Seems like an awful lot of waste of time for something that was seemingly just meant as a psychological ploy to spike the ball in the Iraq war. But then again, so does hiring a canvas to make over, you know, 250 million doses of new smallpox vaccine. Next caller on the Republican line. Good morning. Good morning. I just had a quick question. Is this a voluntary or is it a mandatory system? First of all, um, the smallpox vaccination guide that we published is for after an event. If an event were to occur, again, we can't force people to be vaccinated. But if um, we uh, have an event, we would clearly encourage people to be vaccinated. No decision has been made as to whether we're going to do any kind of vaccination now prior to an event on a voluntary basis. I mean, what's very interesting about this caller, she's very confused and for good reason. The messaging has been extremely mixed. She doesn't even realize this whole time into their conversation that he's talking about it after the fact smallpox response plan. Because the media has sort of been guiding people towards this idea that this is going to be rolled out for the public. And this is what this caller thought this is thought this was. And Jerome Howard sort of correcting her saying, no, this is a decision hasn't been made on that yet. But then he sort of acts as if we can't force people to be vaccinated. I mean, he knows that that's not true. The Bush administration had an incredible amount of just leverage to control the public at that. They could probably tell people to do whatever they wanted them to do. If they wanted to set up mandatory smallpox vaccination for the public, it's hard to say how people would have reacted to it, but he's acting as if that's an impossible outcome. It's not. Um, when you look at no longer uh, made uh, biological weapons for uh, offensive purposes, the smallpox virus that we continue to hold is uh, used for studies, uh, for um, uh, work on how to better protect from smallpox. And we don't have large quantities of it, but we do have it. It's very uh, well secured. Um, we are, however, very concerned that as the breakup of Russia uh, occurred, uh, the security of the uh, virus in Russia uh, was not as well maintained and that uh, as scientists left uh, Russia, uh, the virus could have left Russia. And some of it um, uh, could have fallen in the hands of our adversaries. And we have to take that threat uh, very seriously. 
Now notice he's saying it wasn't as well maintained. And he's referring to that gap of time, I believe, between 89 and 92 when Boris Yeltsin uh, had an agreement with the United States to allow inspection and basically to disband their biological weapons program um, joining the Biological Weapons Convention. But notice how he also sort of gives the line that you know, the Pentagon and DARPA has been given forever, which is this idea of biodefense. He's explaining the concept of biodefense, that we have smallpox, the U.S. has stockpiles of it, in order to do things to protect people and to make better vaccines and for biodefense. But Russia actually, you know, they might have it for nefarious purposes. And in fact, it might have already gotten in the hands of rogue actors. But I mean, let's just cut to the chase here. Jerome Hauer's role in appearing on C-SPAN is he's working as assistant secretary for health and human services at this time. So why does he sound like he's a spook? Why does he keep saying we are concerned about Iraq or the Soviet Union getting rid of this stuff? That's not the role of health and human services. Even Fauci doesn't talk like that when he's been talking about smallpox. So you got to wonder, what is Jerome Hauer's actual role here? Maybe that's why he got so uncomfortable when the guy tried to ask him, because he probably is one of these like insider Bush advisors on the bioterrorism stuff. He's a neocon and a neocon ideologue. And he seems to be in the loop of some of the most sketchy Bush activity that they were responsible for. So yeah, just continue to think in your head, well, this guy is technically appearing there as the Assistant Secretary of Health and Human Services. Why does he just sound like he's a Intel spook? If the United States were to be attacked today, would there be enough vaccine for every person in this country? Absolutely. We have enough vaccine today for every person in this country. Um, we have well over 400 million doses of, uh, if we dilute out uh, the Aventis Pasteur vaccine, the dry vaccine, we could dilute one to five and have 70 million doses. And uh, by the end of this year, we'll have over 60 million doses of the new vaccine we're producing. Well, I don't know why Jerome Hauer said this. Dynepore was producing, they were under contract to produce a new vaccine, um, but they were currently just producing more of the same old style of vaccine from the early 1970s for the Pentagon, for military personnel. Well, Acambus was also doing the same thing with their own formulation of the same old style of vaccine. So when he says there is going to be soon 60 million doses of a new vaccine, um, this actual new vaccine, like a new version of the vaccine, would not actually come out until many, many years later. So I'm not sure why he's getting his information so wrong here. But as you can hear from the callers, people just assume that this was going to be something that was possibly going to be even mandatory that was just coming soon. Um, as they built up for the Iraq war, you know, this hysteria about an impending terror attack grew even louder. And instead of the United States uh, sending out people talking about how anthrax might be on the horizon, because this is pretty much a whole year after the anthrax mailings, they're using smallpox. They're using smallpox in the fall of 2002, when the actual launch of the Iraq invasion was in April 2003. Now, while I was actually recording this podcast, I ended up coming across the 2002 late September, CDC smallpox vaccination guide in full. This was a very elaborate uh, series of guides released in the fall of 2002 that included very detailed forms and instructions on how to do contact tracing. And 
and included lots of blank templates for forms uh, for people to fill out themselves if they come in contact with a smallpox infected person. Uh, it lays out all the ways that you would be surveilled and how you would be quarantined. And it sort of doesn't get too specific about, but does imply that you will lose your civil liberties. And I'm just going to read to you several sections from this smallpox vaccination guide that was allegedly co-authored by Jerome Hauer, even though there's no authorship whatsoever anywhere on this paper or guide. Now, there are multiple drafts of this guide released, and some of them were compiled by someone who has a really excellent website resource that kind of archived all this stuff. Um, I don't know, I can't vouch for the website itself, but this archive that they created is extremely valuable. Um, the website is called biotech.law.lsu.edu, and they have a sub-archive on the CDC's smallpox response plan and guidelines, uh, including the revision to version 3. Now, this has a table of contents, an executive summary, guide A, B, C, D, E, F, and annexes. There were eight different annexes, and the CDC, for some reason, mysteriously removes all this stuff off their website around 2010. Although you can find this in pieces, some of it, on the CDC's website, you can't find most of this right now. Uh, but if you're a MediaRoot subscriber, uh, you now have access to uh, the entire smallpox vaccination plan in all these different PDF files, including all the submission forms for contact tracing, um, if you go to the Anthrax Cash folder right now, which will be included in a link to the Patreon link that you're looking at right now. So you can read all this yourself and look at the original document. It's very, very detailed. And I think one of the, probably the most striking thing about it, just right off the bat, is that it's, it's so detailed and so comprehensive and seems so serious and like it is a serious plan to roll out a massive vaccination program that it just reinforces this idea that smallpox bioterror was real and it reinforces the fear and hypes up and amps up the fear leading into their build up to the Iraq war the neocons build up to the Iraq war so in actuality i don't even think the bush administration the cdc or anybody else in any government agency, release this comprehensive of a guide of what to do in case of this kind of terrorist attack. This might be the most comprehensive guide of such a kind of release. And I think that's saying something if you look at this from the perspective of it being a propaganda tool. Maybe on some level, some of the people involved in this program bought into it. They were believers. But I think people like Jerome Hauer knew exactly what this was for. And this was going to be one of the most powerful propaganda tools that somehow got completely memory-holed in history. Piggybacking off the anthrax fears, bioterrorism, this is a comprehensive, elaborate plan. The executive summary of this plan makes it very clear this is about bioterrorism, not just if smallpox were to break out. Now, the actual final revision, the, re the revision that they ended up, I think, making public, actually doesn't even mention bioterrorism at the beginning. It kind of omits it. And it makes it seem as if this is just in case of smallpox. Well, here's from the original version of the document. The executive summary says, In response to the potential use of biological agents against civilians, 
The federal government has committed to upgrading preparedness, readiness, and national defenses against bioterrorist weapons. The CDC has been designated as the lead agency for upgrading national public health capabilities for responding to biological terrorism. Many biological agents could be used to attack civilians. However, only a few, such as smallpox virus, have the ability to cause illness or panic to the extent that existing medical and public health systems would be overwhelmed. Although smallpox was globally eradicated, stores of the smallpox virus may exist in laboratories other than the two WHO-designated repositories. The possibility for the use of smallpox virus as a bioterrorism agent and the potential for its rapid spread have prompted the updating of a response plan previously developed by the, by the CDC for responding to the potential importation of smallpox during the 1970s. This interim document also identifies many of the federal, state, and local health activities that must be undertaken in a smallpox emergency. This plan, much of which has been in place for years, will be regularly updated to reflect changes in capacities to a smallpox emergency. Following a confirmed smallpox outbreak within the United States, rapid voluntary vaccination of a large population may be required to supplement priority surveillance and containment control strategies in areas with smallpox cases. Now, this section, these following considerations must apply, sounds relatively reasonable. It says consent must be obtained, and it's voluntary. So the patient basically has to fill out a form consenting. Medical screenings for contradictions must be done, and vaccination should be generally not recommended for persons with contradictions who are not otherwise identified as contacts. Now, that's interesting. Um, so that's a distinction. So people who might have been in contact with a smallpox-infected person will still be recommended vaccination even if they have things that could be potentially fatal side effects. Appropriate amounts of vaccinia immune globulin should be available within the NPS to treat anticipated adverse events prior to large-scale vaccination. Well, interestingly, they already got you know enough vaccine for the American public by this time over 250 million doses, but they don't have even over a thousand doses of vaccinia immune globulin. Apparently, there were only 600 total doses in the supply chain. So they didn't seem to care very much about making sure they had enough of that so that they could treat people who had adverse reactions. Now, it goes on to talk about sort of this, the actual like physical setup of how these vaccine stations will be set up. They're going to be announced on public television. They'll be announced on radio. There'll be pre-designated sites or clinics. They're going to have different clinics for people to get vaccinated and evaluation, different clinics for people to be evaluated to rule out smallpox. These evaluation sites should be separate from designated vaccination clinics, but they should also have the capability to administer vaccination. And then it also talks about how they will be either given a written script or made to watch a video before they take the vaccine. Now, keep in mind, this is like basically implying that, and, and the number hasn't come yet in the document, but I'm telling you from what's in it, is that this is implying that over 1 million people will be vaccinated, like in the initial stage of this. So the rollout is going to be incredibly elaborate. It talks about the potential types of vaccine formulations. 
It mentions Acambus, Baxter, and I'm not sure what Baxter is or if that was a pre-existing vaccine. It mentions Drivax, our old stockpiles of smallpox vaccine, and also mentions Aventus Pasteur, their old storage of smallpox vaccine that I guess the CDC at this time had obtained. So in this smallpox rollout vaccination plan, they were doing they were talking about using a mixture of the old vaccine stockpiles plus the new ones that Acambus had made. Now, just an example of how elaborate this plan was going to be, the video orientation would take in each clinic eight people with two working shifts, 16 total people. Personnel to run video orientation regarding clinic procedures, paperwork, consent information, reasons for vaccination, contradictions to vaccination, five rooms running concurrently that hold 75 people sessions with two staff rooms, 20 minutes per session, allowing for five to 10 minutes for moving people in and out of the orientation room. Approximately 750 people oriented per hour. So imagine this, you go into a vaccination clinic. Imagine going into a COVID vaccine clinic now where it's almost like a a weird futuristic uh, Futurama style thing where there's five rooms concurrently running the same like creepy video where 750 people per hour are oriented on video before they get vaccinated. Now, there's also this thing where you can get trapped in sort of a little bit of a draconian surveillance rabbit hole. You already are if you get vaccinated. You have to fill out a form. You take a card. It's a little bit more draconian initially for everybody than the COVID-19 vaccines are. But then if your vaccine doesn't take, meaning if you don't see a rash appear on your arm, then basically you have to call the hotline and you do have to go back to the vaccine center. And from here, you're allowed to be monitored by someone from the Department of Health and Human Services. You sort of lose your privacy rights at this point. Now, it says that they will basically be checking on uh, people whose vaccine didn't take by monitoring a revaccination to see if it takes, by monitoring the entry point where the vaccination was inserted to see if a rash develops. Now, they have several different versions of the guide. Information for people who have HIV, information for pregnant women, information for people who are thinking of getting their child vaccinated. Um, information for people who have been in close contact to a person with smallpox. It says you are receiving this information because you have been in close contact with someone who has smallpox. What is close contact? Living in the same home or having spent at least three hours with someone with smallpox. Contacts are watched carefully for signs and symptoms that they are getting sick. You will be watched for signs and symptoms of smallpox even if you take the vaccine. Someone from the Department of Health will visit or call you twice every day to check for you these signs of getting smallpox. Or you may be asked to call the Department of Health twice a day to let them know how you are feeling. You will be watched for these signs and symptoms for 18 days. People you live with and work with may also be offered vaccination. If someone you live with cannot take the vaccination or decides not to take the vaccination, They will have to make arrangements to live somewhere else for an 18-day time period. During this 18-day time period, you may leave your house, but you should not travel more than one hour from your house. And then this appears on several of the different uh, things that were supposed to be released for the public, um, where they give out at these vaccine clinics. And this is actually 
um, in the smallpox cache archive on that's for Media Root subscribers right now. And they have two different versions of this. What if I decide not to get the smallpox vaccine? Or what if I decide not to get the smallpox vaccine for my child? Well, if you decide not to get the smallpox vaccine, it says it is your choice whether or not to get the vaccine. But this is when it gets crazy. It says, if it, it says, if you have been in contact with a person who has smallpox and you decide not to get the vaccine, you may be kept apart from other people for 18 days. This means that you would not be able to be in contact with other people who have not been vaccinated. You will not be able to stay home or go to work. You will be watched to be sure that you do not develop smallpox. What if I decide not to get the smallpox vaccination for my child? If your child has been in contact with a person who has smallpox and you decide not to get the vaccine for your child, your child may be placed in isolation for 18 days. This means that your child would not be able to be in contact with other people who have not been vaccinated. Your child may not be able to stay at home. Your child will be watched to be sure that he, she does not develop smallpox and to be sure they do not give smallpox to others. If your child has not been in contact with anyone with smallpox and you decide not to get the vaccine for your child, your child should stay away from anyone you suspect may have smallpox. Infants less than one year old who are vaccinated may have a greater risk of developing complications from the vaccine, such as brain swelling or a total body rash. Brain swelling is a rare complication but can occur in about 42 out of every 1 million infants. Brain swelling can lead to permanent brain damage or even death. Information for people who have been in close contact with someone who had smallpox. You will be watched for signs and symptoms of smallpox even if you take the vaccine. Someone from the Department of Health will visit or call you twice every day. Contacts are watched carefully for signs and symptoms that they are getting sick. You'll be watched for signs and symptoms of smallpox even if you take the vaccine. So pretty crazy. And when you look at the smallpox cash archive that's available to Media Roots Radio subscribers, you'll see all these submission forms for what to do for contact tracing and how fucking elaborate it is. I mean, now they could just use an app and a digital thing for this, but this is way more draconian seeming than anything we're experiencing in the United States from COVID-19, luckily. A little over a year from the exact day that Judith Miller received a hoax anthrax letter from St. Petersburg, Florida, she writes an article for the New York Times called Pentagon Plans Smallpox Shots for Up to 500,000. Now, she seems to be really early on this to describe the next stage of this. After Jerome Hauer released this manual, the next stage of it was going to be, as she says in here, vaccinating up to a half a million troops against smallpox as soon as the vaccine is licensed in mid-November. It's a month and a half from now, military and administration officials said today. And the article interestingly starts with just the line straight up saying, with the Bush administration moving closer to military action against Iraq, the Pentagon is expected to begin vaccinating up a, to a half a million troops against smallpox. So the events are completely linked in the way this narrative is being rolled out. The officials said that leading military and civilian advisors to Defense Secretary Donald Rumsfeld, as well as his top medical experts, had recommended that the troops be inoculated. The officials, familiar with the prolonged debate over whether to vaccinate against a disease, and if so, whom, said Mr. Rumsfeld had not yet approved the recommendations. But barring objections from the White House, they said, that approval is all but assured. Soldiers would then be receiving vaccine 
that would not yet be available to most civilians because of concerns about potential side effects. Of the 1.4 million service members on active duty, 350,000 to 500,000 could be immunized under the Pentagon's plan, officials said. Most would be in units that might eventually be deployed to the Middle East, though others would be inoculated as well. If you're talking about potentially sending troops to areas where they could be exposed to smallpox, one senior military official said, aren't you negligent if you don't give them every possible protection? Vice President Dick Cheney, who was Secretary of Defense during the Persian Gulf of 1991, has been a strong advocate of vaccinating the troops against smallpox, administration officials say. Those who favor immunization have agreed that while scientific data shows that vaccination given within four days of exposure can prevent the disease, there are no readily deployable detectors that can reliably signal the presence of the virus in an attack on a battlefield or in a terrorist strike. Scientists said the decision was difficult because the vaccine itself has been known to cause life-threatening complications for 15 of every 1 million people. Now, at this time, the FDA still has not approved or licensed the, the smallpox vaccine in any form, not even the old version of the vaccine. It's no longer licensed for public use. And apparently the Pentagon was waiting on this license to go through in mid-November. I played you all these media clips so far. Um, I told you that Bush, Cheney already talked about smallpox. But I think possibly one of the biggest media inserts in the United States press about this that probably had the biggest impact on the American psyche was a Newsweek cover. A Newsweek cover uh, from October 14th, 2002, called Operation Smallpox. This Newsweek cover story was about a very large, uh, very propagandistic article that took up a large section of the magazine all about this you know, potential of a smallpox terrorist attack. The cover says, inside the emergency plan to inoculate every American, how real is the threat? Well, just to give you an overview of what kind of article this is, how many times is Iraq mentioned in this seven-page article? Or sorry, six-page article from Newsweek magazine. It's mentioned seven times. So imagine just the impact of one ABC News segment or the president or Cheney linking smallpox to Iraq like once in a TV appearance. Well, this article happens to plant the seeds in the reader's mind seven times that Iraq may have smallpox. That's quite a few times. So I am arguing here that this might be one of the most important pieces of propaganda that was probably, in, I mean, had to have been influenced by maybe even completely doctored by the Bush administration, uh, to be deployed in the press. And guess who is pictured in this article? Well, the team. This is who's considered the team of the smallpox rollout vaccination program. Les Crawford at the FDA, the CDC's Julie Gerberding, Jerome Hauer, Tommy Thompson, D.A. Henderson, and Dr. Fauci. Now, Jerome Hauer... And D.A. Henderson were the two guys that probably were like the most connected to the Bush administration directly. D.A. Henderson does not necessarily come from like the era of, he's not like a neocon ideologue, but Jerome Hauer is. So I think in essence, what you're looking at here is a strange symbolic photograph 
where it shows all these people from left to right. And the one in the very center, but in the background, sort of hovering above everybody is Jerome Hauer. And I think, you know, symbolically, you know, he was the, sort of the neocon anchor of this. You know, again, I think it's wise to follow the patterns of PNAC outward or potential 9-11 suspects outward. And Jerome Hauer is one of these key people. Now, this article has some really scary diagrams in it showing what happens when you get smallpox. But I'll just read to you some of the inserts. Well, first, I'll just say that most of the mentions of Iraq are in a little sub-article inside the article saying, in the 1980s, the Soviet Union made tons of smallpox. Does anyone secretly have it? Who? And what are their plans? Now, this is interesting. The notion of a black market in smallpox keeps the Bush administration up at night. Homeland Security Tsar Tom Ridge points to, quote, credible information within the international community at large that some of our enemies have smallpox, unquote. Vice President Dick Cheney thinks so, too. When bioweapons inspectors visited Iraq in the mid-1990s, they found no smoking gun, but they did find a disturbing sliver of evidence. They saw the word smallpox written in Arabic on a freeze dryer that could have been used to weaponize the virus. Iraq claimed the dryer was used to make vaccines. And again, just mixed messages even in this article. When Hussein Kamal, Saddam's son-in-law, and his bioweapons director defected temporarily to Jordan in 1995, he disclosed much about Iraq's bioweapons, but he denied any effort to weaponize smallpox. Intelligence sources say there's no evidence that Iraq has smallpox. Kind of a whiplashy, you know, couple paragraphs to read. Are we the only ones worried? Is one of the questions that it poses here. No. Israel last month started vaccinating frontline healthcare workers. Some Israeli bioweapons experts are convinced that Iraq poses a smallpox threat and advocate vaccinating the entire population. Britain and Australia have also been buying vaccines. And then centering into, in this article is a picture of Israel inoculating healthcare workers against smallpox. So I think that the fact that Israel was starting to get in on this um, is very key as well. Because Israel is sort of implying that they're doing this because of Iraq. They're being even more open about it. And as we build up to the Iraq war, part of the understanding was that, well, Iraq might retaliate with smallpox against Israel and the United States. I mean, that was how fucking weird and gamed out shit was already getting for no reason. <laughs> But yeah, this article itself, uh, this Newsweek article, is actually contained in the smallpox cache within the anthrax cache, the raw dump of documents, um, very organized, uh, tons of stuff that have to do with our anthrax and smallpox investigation. So please check out that folder if you are a Media Roots Radio Patreon subscriber. And then we have, again, I think one of the luckiest fiction writers on the planet, it seems to have been basically tapped by the deep state, the national security state, to be an emissary for a propaganda narrative that's a mixture of fact and fiction. Well, he, Richard Preston, the author of The Hot Zone and The Cobra Event, The Cobra Event specifically having an enormous influence on Clinton's view on biological weapons. On October 16, 2002, Richard Preston, that same author, does a talk about his new book called Demon in the Freezer. C-SPAN describes it as 
The Demon in the Freezer, a true story, published by Random House. In it, Preston talks about the September 11th attacks, the anthrax scare that followed, and the threat posed by the smallpox virus. Now, of course, Mr. Preston's book is seemingly all about sort of this concept of smallpox escaping from a lab and, and, and you know, going somehow into the hands of a rogue nation. What are the chances that his book would come out around this exact same time when the smallpox vaccination rollout program was ramping up so hard? It's peculiar, and it's what I mean by one of the luckiest writers alive. He basically caught the wave at the perfect time, almost as if it was coordinated timing, almost as if his book Demon in the Freezer itself was a parallel propaganda track being put out by people in the national security state to bolster the public declaration of and the public push for the smallpox vaccination campaign. Here's a clip from Richard Preston doing a talk about Demon in the Freezer on C-SPAN. Richard Preston needs a little introduction. His bestseller, The Hot Zone, about the Ebola virus put him on the map. The Hot Zone continues to be widely read. Many of you may, may or may not know, but it is used as a text, both in English classes and in science cl classes in many high schools across the country. It says volumes, I think, about his ability to communicate. He has more recently turned his attention to the threat of bioterrorism. And his fictional book of bioterrorism, The Cobra Event, kept President Clinton awake, especially when the president learned that the book was largely based on fact. A subsequent article on smallpox in The New Yorker two years ago won Richard Preston the National Magazine Award for Public Interest. He also has received an award from CDC for his championship of public health. We're quite fortunate to have Richard Preston talk to us tonight about his current work, and let's give him a warm welcome. Thank you very much, Ruth, and thank you all for your wonderful, warm reception and your turnout. I'm really, truly honored by this and, um, and feel very, very welcomed by my friends at the Centers for Disease Control, uh, my friends in the public health community. Uh, we have, I have friends here from the Army as well, and uh, it is a great privilege to address you tonight. The smallpox virus is the central subject and central character of the demon in the freezer. Smallpox is an organism that once lived in nature and was exclusively a parasite of the human body. Today it exists uh, officially in two locations on the planet, one here in Atlanta at the CDC in the maximum containment lab and the other location is in Siberia at a research lab called Vector. Unofficially, smallpox is thought to reside in biowarfare labs in an unknown number of countries around the world, countries that may include Iraq and may include, indeed, um, Russia itself, which may possess uh, unde undeclared stocks of smallpox virus in military facilities where it was once stockpiled in tonnage quantities for use as a weapon in warheads that may have been targeted on the United States in intercontinental ballistic missiles. Where that smallpox is today is not entirely known and there have not been entire, entirely forthcoming assurances from the government of the Russian Federation about that. 
Now, the timing is just incredible for Preston here to be launching this book, which becomes a bestseller, of course, The Demon in the Freezer, just a month before Bush announces the official smallpox rollout. And notice how he says some of my friends are here from the army, from the government, from the CDC, and it was a great honor for him to speak in front of them. But this concludes part three of our ongoing series on the Bush-era smallpox bioterror scare. This episode may be unlocked at some point, along with some of the other episodes in this series. So if you're listening to this and you're not already a Patreon subscriber to Media Roots Radio, please consider becoming one to get access to bonus episodes like these immediately when they come out, and also access to our ongoing document cache and our interactive anthrax and 9-11 map. We just uploaded a shitload of new documents to the smallpox cache, about 50 new PDF documents, including an entire mirror image of all of the missing CDC documents for the smallpox vaccination rollout plan, which you can access right now as a Media Roots Radio subscriber. As a bonus, go to the YouTube channel, A Very Heavy Agenda, and check out the 20 newest news clips that I just uploaded about the smallpox bioterror scare. Thanks for listening, everybody. The anthrax in that letter was aerosolized, wafted into the air, and floated. And that suggests very pure, very fine particles that were handled by someone who knew what he was doing. Twenty people in Dashiell's suite of offices breathed in the airborne particles. Two others were exposed when the powder somehow floated to neighboring offices down the hall. Capitol Police officers inhaled microscopic specks in the air 15 minutes after the letter was opened. Apparently, someone has used an American strain of anthrax and America's own biological research to kill Americans. In the scale of things, it's nothing compared to September 11th. But there's something about germs that just unhinges people, watching the way the impact it's had on Capitol Hill and uh, throughout America, I realize that this really is a weapon of mass disruption as opposed to a weapon of mass destruction and that the disruption can be just as debilitating to a society psychologically, logistically, uh, as actual deaths. If mass disruption is the primary goal, there is unfortunately no shortage of means. Once obtained, some germs require very little expertise to use as a weapon. Contemplate the havoc that could be wreaked in this country or in any country by the introduction of a small number of highly contagious people with smallpox. I mean, just think about that. I mean, it's a very, 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 very contagious disease. Smallpox martyrs. Instead of those people who want to go into a building and blow themselves yeah. up, somebody who walks yeah. wants to walk into our country infected yeah. with something that could kill us all. 
these scenarios, while possible, I think have to be examined very closely. You have to remember that the early phase of smallpox infection produces high fever and, and prostration, extreme exhaustion. It'd be unlike it, a smallpox patient would be able to get on a closed system such as an airplane at the time that they would be most infectious because the infection would be obvious with a rash and, and developing uh, lesions on the hands, face first and then the trunk. It is often assumed that each smallpox victim can infect 10 or more people. But a new study by the CDC indicates that the real number is much lower, perhaps only one or two secondary cases. Smallpox may not be such a perfect biological weapon after all. To make a dependable, large-scale biological attack requires an enormous number of problems to be solved. I won't go into them, but there are very, very many. On the other hand, it's always possible that a much smaller effort might, in the hands of a terrorist, might work. In the 1950s and 60s, the U.S. Army also stockpiled non-contagious germs, carefully selected to avoid killing the enemy, but making him too sick to fight. Has discovered that America came closer to using these so-called incapacitating agents than has ever been made public. And we've also learned that there, you know, that there was uh, interest in using uh, these kind of uh, things that were weapons that were under development, uh, you know, at Dietrich. Uh, you know, uh, possibly as a hypo, you know, as a, uh, I don't know, a, a, a contingency, you know, for possible war against uh, Cuba. Uh, what can you say about any, any or all of that? I have not, nothing to say. Not, about a, not that. a damn not, thing. Not a, not, a, not a thing. Yeah. No. Bill Patrick wouldn't talk on camera about secret war plans against Cuba, but he's been very forthcoming in his lectures to military personnel such as this 1999 lecture at Maxwell Air Force Base. Use combinations of organisms. For example, when we were having trouble with the Soviet Union and Cuba, uh, we produced 3,000, about 3,000 gallons of Q fever and about uh, 2,500 gallons of VEE virus slurry, both liquid. And, and by combining these two organisms, we would incapacitate that Cuban population from three days to about uh, a little over uh, two weeks. And the concept is that we didn't destroy the, the infrastructure. Uh, we just made a lot of people sick. Very few of them are going to die. We could move our, source, our forces in and take over the country, and uh, that would be it. That, that was the concept. The reporters found no evidence that the U.S. ever used biological weapons in Cuba or anywhere else. There is no conclusive evidence that the Soviet Union ever used their biological weapons either. But the weapons they had ready to use were more advanced than anything the Americans developed. The Soviet Union exploiting the revolution in genetic engineering and molecular, molecular biology that happened in the, in the 1970s and 1980s went um, 10, 20, 30 years beyond uh, what we ever achieved in the sophistication and lethality and variety of biological weapons. Relatively large team, the biggest team probably in the history of the Soviet Union dealing with synthetic DNA. 
Sergei Popov is now working in Virginia under a U.S. Defense Department contract to do biomedical research. Right now, we protect people from biological agents, but in the former Soviet Union, we've developed for more than 15, 17 years, we've tried to develop more dangerous biological agents. The process is quite similar. It could protect people and it could be used to create more dangerous biological agents. We're uh, exploiting or exploring the possibility of designer bugs. They were trying to cross the properties of diseases to create superbugs, to mix smallpox, which is very contagious, with other agents. We need to understand what they did, because if something like that ever got out of the laboratory, if there were an accident, or if that seed culture were shared with another government or a terrorist group, then that's, that's a doomsday type of a scenario. In May of 2000, the U.S. government conducted a major drill meant to simulate these types of disasters. And in Denver, the simulation was a, a plague outbreak. Participants in this drill, called Operation Topoff, acted out what might happen after a terrorist released an aerosol of contagious plague into a crowded theater. When the plague bacteria, Yersinia pestis, is inhaled, the result is rapid pneumonia and bleeding in the lungs. In just three years during the 14th century, one plague epidemic killed a third of the population of Europe. He's cardiac arrest. I don't know what's going on. Any blood coming out of his mouth, any body lesions. In the drill, plague spread to 4,000 people within four days. Two million citizens were under quarantine. The federal system kind of fell apart because there were so many federal agencies jostling for control. The Department of Defense, Health and Human Services, the Federal Emergency Management Agency, the Centers for Disease Control, the FBI, and then state and local governments, local fire departments. Local fire departments are the first responders for many emergencies. They don't normally work with the Pentagon. They had a teleconference call anytime they needed to make a decision that linked up 100 people to make that decision. And if that's not a ridiculous set of circumstances for decision making, I don't know what is. At the one minute mark, they did one set per minute. Pagers don't work in bunkers. You're going to actually take the leadership role in that? The confusion seen in practice drills is eerily similar to reality during the anthrax letter crisis of 2001. 